This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and I'm joined today by Tony Black. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks, Duncan. Um, happy 2021. I think this is the first time we've recorded this year. I think it might be, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and what a roller coaster ride we're concluding in this episode, eh? It's taken a while. We are, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's been a... I can't even remember when we started this. It feels like time has no meaning. We're in a sort of time loop anyway and have been for about the past year. Yeah, because yeah. we're, we're recording in March and uh, we're coming right up against... It must be next week, is it? The one-year anniversary I think so. The first lockdown. Yeah. Um, we didn't start doing the series then, but uh, it was at some point in the first lockdown, mm. I think, that we that we started. I think so. Maybe in the gap, who knows? Uh, but yeah, it's been quite a long old uh, journey <laughs> getting from there to here. I feel like recording this saga has sort of mirrored the the, the pandemic we've been in because it's just felt like we're never going to get to the end of it. <laughs> it's mm. a good metaphor. Exactly. And every t- every time we thought we were, we were going to get something done in a certain <laughs> amount of time, we ended up having to split it. I mean, you know, we're optimistically saying this is the last one. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, we have no idea anymore. <laughs> it might split into two or three or, or, or who knows yeah, where. it's very true. And, uh, and also, I mean, what we're going to look at today is basically everything from after, I think we went up to the end of Enterprise last yeah. time. So everything from then through to now. Mm. But of course, that's not the end. You know, there's more yep. Star Trek around the corner. There's more Star Trek in production. Um, we don't know the titles, as far as I know, of any of those episodes. But, um, you know, this is uh, maybe this is a series we can come back to in, I don't know, a year or two's time. A and, few years. And kind of catch up with. But, <laughs> yeah. but for now, exactly, maybe in a few years. Yeah. For now, this should be the end of this particular saga. <laughs> a relief, no doubt, to some, perhaps a source of sadness to others. Uh, I know which camp I'm going to fall into, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> hopefully some of our listeners are, are on the other side of the fence on that. In, in, fair, in, fair, so anyway. in fairness, <laughs> I think this has been a lot of fun. So I, <laughs> it's just taken it a long no, time. No, it has been fun. <laughs> It has been fun, but it's been a bit of a, a, a yeah, yeah, 
a bit of a slog yeah. at the same time yeah. at times. <laughs> anyway, this should be an interesting one. I think, I mean, we're well past the days of, you know, Voyager and, and Next Gen and their slightly boring <laughs> Berman era titles. Yeah. This, the, I think since Star Trek came back with Discovery, they have gone for pretty kind of classically wild, weird and wonderful yeah. titles. So we have quite a lot to, to delve into. Mm. But before we start on Discovery, actually, I thought we should talk a little bit about the Kelvinverse movies because yes. they also are kind of in that gap. And the first of those movies, of course, uh, came along with a very controversial, I would say, title in that it was just called Star Trek. Now, we hadn't had anything called Star Trek since the original series, which we now call the original series. But at the time, that was Star Trek. So what does it mean for J.J. Abrams to bring uh, Star Trek back to the big screen and make this very sort of ballsy move of saying, this is Star Trek? Uh, I mean, and first of all, there are lots of fans out there who might say, well, yeah, so you say, but not as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's a kind of question mark over whether this really is Star Trek mm. because it's an alternate reality and so on. But there's also a kind of question, I think, of it's almost by by giving it that title, by going right back to the beginning, is there almost a sense that it's replacing the original series somehow? Do you know what I mean? There's that kind of element. And it on one level, it is in that it's a new version or a new sort of spin on that setup on those stories and so on. It's the new Star Trek. It's the 21st century Star Trek. But a very interesting uh, move, I think, to go for that title. And like I say, quite a kind of bold statement of intent in a way. Yeah. And I, th- I, I mean, I think it's probably based heavily, I imagine, around like brand IP recognition, you know, something like this. I, th- I think, you know, they, when, they, when they rebooted... And obviously, there's, you know, we've had endless debates, haven't we, about, where, you know, quite whether it's a reboot or it's a remake or, or it's like some weird hybrid of the two or, you know, a, a, a reimagining, you know, it's all of them, really. And, and I think what they wanted really was to sort of suggest that this is the Star Trek that I, iconically you remember, you know, this is the, this is the Star Trek that in in a lot of people's minds certainly in popular culture you know you think of kirk you think of spark you think of the original enterprise even if you were born years later you know and uh, which which i think i don't know if i agree with that completely because i think it, certainly for me like and and you'll be the same because we're of a similar age it was it, it we we didn't grow up watching at the time, Kirk and Spock on television, you know, that we, we saw it in repeats years later. You know, we grew up with the 90s Trek. You're right, yeah. And, and Star Trek to us was a franchise. It wasn't yeah, a show, precisely. I suppose, in the sense that those who grew up with the original series, star, that was Star Trek, that was the show. Whereas for us, Star Trek was this kind of umbrella... Uh, and then, as I say, we called it the original series. You know, we, we had to, there had to be a new name for that. Uh, I guess a bit like Star Wars. I mean, they had, you know, a film that was originally called Star Wars. Now it's known as A New Hope because all those films are called Star Wars. But, um, but it's interesting to go back to that. And, and you're right, I think, to say that it's kind of iconic. And in that respect, I think it's interesting that the other decision they took is they didn't just call it Star Trek. They brought back that font. Now, we hadn't seen that font, I don't think, since the 1960s. And now, ever since 2009, that font is indelibly associated with every Star Trek product going forward. Sometimes slightly awkwardly, in s- that I don't think that font always matches the font they use for the individual shows. Um, I mean, I found it very disconcerting in some ways when Star Trek Picard had the like original series font 
attached to it because obviously Next Generation never had that. Deep Space Nine never had that. Voyager, Enterprise, you know, none of these shows, none of the movies uh, ever tied back into that kind of retro um, styling, that kind of 1960s styling. J.J. Abrams, obviously, although he's doing something very modern and flashy and whiz-bang and kind of cutting edge, also is tying into that sort of 60s nostalgia. And that font is very much a way of sort of signalling that. And I suppose it's also a way of saying this is not a different Star Trek insofar as, you know, the motion picture was a kind of different kind of Star Trek, uh, next gen. All, all these kind of spin-offs were different riffs on Star Trek. This, in some way, is that original Star Trek. This is the same thing. It's branded mm. the same way as it was, you know, nearly 50 years ago. Yeah, completely. And, and I mean, the irony, the irony is, I mean, a- Abrams would have been of the age where he saw, when he was a child, when he saw Star Trek on in the 70s on reruns, you know, when it was even more popular in many ways in syndication and, and on reruns. But he was, by his own admission, he was never a mega Star Trek fan anyway. You know, it was Star Wars was his thing when he was, you know, a teenager, when he was a young lad. You know, he, he, he had a knowledge of it and he watched bits of it, but he was never necessarily attuned to it. So I feel like, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why... You know, in 2009, they went back to that well of Kirk and Spock. I, and I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with, in many ways, it's it's a devolution of the idea in, in line with a lot of other franchises. And we've probably talked about this on this podcast before. I'm sure we have. About around that time, you had James Bond doing it. You had you know Batman doing it. You had a lot of these big popular franchises that were going back to the beginning, you know, and they were doing the origin stories. And that, and, and that film is an origin story in a way that the original series never was. You know, so it's very much playing in those kind of wheelhouses. And I think that's ultimately the core reason why that old font is used, why they just brand it Star Trek. And obviously now we've had to have, we when we talk about it, we had 2009 on, don't we? Even though it's not technically called that, because it's the only way we can distinguish, you know, that being that film. And I think it's, it's it, is it ever going to be, a statement of intent as a title in the way that maybe they think it is. I'm not so sure. You know, I don't necessarily think that that film, much as I do like it a great deal, actually, will ever be a definitive Star Trek as as you look back and you think of the 60s, you know, or even, or even the, you know, the 80s and the 90s in the same way. Um, so it, it's, it, it's interesting how that one doesn't have a... Uh, a suffix, you know, a title afterwards. And, and, and so, yeah, it, it's it's definitely for me a corporate IP decision, that whole, the whole thing. It's a curious one, though, isn't it? Because on the one level, um, it's almost an unsayable name insofar as you're right. It doesn't mean anything on its own insofar as if you're talking about it in the context of Star Trek, you have to call it 2009. You have to call it, you know, we have to call it something other than what its name technically is, that film, because its name doesn't really make sense in terms of distinguishing yeah. it. On the other hand, I wonder if there's another element to it that um, in the cinema, you know, when you have these long running franchises, I'm sure it's the same with Star Wars. You know, if you go, or, or James Bond, to be honest, whatever it is, if you go and see a franchise movie, what do you ask the guy or the girl at the kiosk for a ticket for you probably say can i have a ticket for star trek can i have a ticket for star wars do you know what i mean you don't necessarily actually even if you do know the name of the individual installment so i kind of wonder if it's partly that is it's you know they're trying to 
go beyond the sort of established fandom and into a sort of broader audience, the broader audience who are kind of familiar with the idea of Star Trek. Maybe they watched a bit of the original series. They're not really, uh, you know, sort of hardcore fans. Maybe it's almost a recognition of that, that really, you know, when you put it out there, you put this kind of tentpole um, movie out there, as far as anyone going to the cinema, or as far as most people going to the cinema is concerned, it's Star Trek. Let's go and see Star Trek. Let's call it Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? And in a way, all of those, um, whatever comes after the colon is sort of, it's almost that's kind of internal. That's, that's to distinguish it from these other films. Whereas really all we care about is this one. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, this is, this is what it is. Then of course, there's an interesting question when they go into the other two, into darkness and beyond. Um, then I suppose they start to have to develop their own identity as these Kelvin movies. And I guess they do that with, well, for one thing, losing the colon. Now I was quite surprised. It wasn't until I spoke to Lee Hutchison about some of the earlier uh, Trek movies that I realised that some of the next gen movies didn't have colons. I sort of always assumed that everything had a colon until um, Into Darkness. But in fact, the colons do seem to sort of come and go. But Star Trek Into Darkness without the colon was kind of an interesting choice, I think, because it it makes it sound like, you know, we are Star Trekking into darkness as opposed to Star Trek, you know, dash, colon, something into darkness. It's not a subtitle. It's not a, um, th- th- there's not necessarily a relationship between two parts there. It's it's almost like one, uh, one phrase somehow. Yeah. And I suppose that is a interesting choice because i don't think you know even if star trek nemesis doesn't have a colon i think we sort of understand it as star trek nemesis we don't think of it as this is about a star trek nemesis yeah, you know yeah, yeah I mean? it's yeah. not one concept it's two concepts banded together whereas somehow star trek into darkness it's the into i think makes you think are they trying to bridge that gap somehow are they trying to make it into one unit yeah in a way, rather than these two things that kind of work together yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting way of looking at this. Actually, I think you're right. I mean, I I, I said I've said to you before we we've recorded. I I think I don't like that title at all for the simple fact that it doesn't mean anything in actual terms. It's it's empty. You know, it, it is suggesting something. Yeah, it's suggesting that the franchise is going into darker waters. And you know, I, I feel like, again. I feel from a cynical point of view, I feel like the whole thing is is very much in the shadow of the Dark Knight, the Batman movie. I mean, even the poster. If you remember the poster right, of yeah. Khan standing with his back, sorry, John Harris, mm. sorry, John Harrison standing with his back <laughs> um, yeah. to everybody, surrounded by this, like you know, I think it's the the vengeance, isn't it? That's that's just you know the ec- or whatever you know, the wreckage or something, looking out at like a city that's bombed or whatever. It's just very, so that very sort of terrorist, terror terror iconography that is very much associated with it starting into darkness and was associated with the Christopher Nolan Batman films. And I think, you know, in that con- in the context of a Batman movie, The Dark Knight makes sense, you know, in so many ways. I'm not sure Star Trek Into Darkness means anything except this ominous suggestion of, you know, how darkness must mean uh, excitement and danger, you know, and that, and it, it just cheapens it, you know, because that that film ultimately is, I I think the worst of the three for me. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone to disagree well, with pro- that, wouldn't you? I mean, I know there are some people who defend that film. Yeah, and I, and I, <laughs> I sort of assume that's because they're like massive fans of the other two. But, so. I, it must be. It must be. I mean, I, I, without getting onto too much of a sidebar, I just think that film 
is one of those examples of a film that just relentlessly goes gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, basically, the more you watch it, actually. Um, but I think the, the whole idea of the title is meant to try and say, look, this is more exciting, it's more dangerous, it's darker, it's more, you know, it's more thrilling, you know, come with us on this journey. And it's like, you don't need that. Like you don't, you don't need that at all, and it, it doesn't mean anything at all. When you look back at the other, co- like you've just well described, when you look at, back at all the other non-colon movies, they they make sense. Much as something like Insurrection was probably a bit of a crap choice in hindsight, they should have gone with some one of the other, you know, choices that they were bandying around that was a bit more direct. You know, Insurrection. You know, everyone's got to reach for their dictionary and have a look. Whereas it's at least you understand what this means, but it just it's empty, and I think that is why it doesn't work for me. Well, and arguably Star Trek Beyond is equally meaningless. <laughs> I, mean, I like it better somehow. Maybe partly because it's just quite a short word. It, it's sort of fairly inoffensive. But again, you know, beyond what? I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's again slightly vague, I suppose. Slightly... Um, it's it's not very specific, and and I suppose you could make maybe the same. I mean, you could say the final frontier is not very specific, but at least it's a Star Trek reference, so we kind of get why they're, uh, and we know what it means. You know, it means on one level, it means space. In this instance, they're you know in, of the final frontier, they're kind of suggesting a slightly different meaning. You know, they're going further, they're going beyond, they're going they're going beyond. You know, literally, but they're um y- y- you know there's there's yet another frontier almost beyond that one. I don't know. It's quite poetic, um, isn't it? Martha Khan, you know, descriptive. Yeah, exactly. That's Whereas, the difference. I, I don't know. I don't mind Star Trek Beyond, I, partly because I love the film. I mean, for me of those three, that's uh, the one that I really enjoyed the most. But it is a bit of a... It's not really a title that sells how much fun that film is. I mean, that's why I like it. I feel it. it that's the one for me that does have the kind of uh, original series vibe somehow. It does have the sense of kind of um, fun. It has the kind of character comedy. It has all that side of it. Um, but whether the word Beyond really conveys that i'm not sure yeah I think we kind of maybe we give it a pass because we like the film i mean maybe if into darkness was a better film you wouldn't have a problem with the title well, it's like you know may, maybe maybe <laughs> but I, th- I feel like the best titles the best star trek titles for movies do have a certain mm. evocative nature to them you know well i say that mm. the best <laughs> the final frontier is not the best star trek film in the world it's just got quite a good title um but you know and to be fair the motion picture is boring as hell as a title you know star trek the motion picture that doesn't really mean anything anyway and arguably but many people would argue it, it fits the movie perfectly i love that film the the older i get actually but yeah exactly um the no more, i do the, too the more... i think there is a perception at least that it's yeah. a bit dull and a bit you know bland a bit pastely yeah and uh the title is a bit pastely too i think you're right whereas something like first contact in some ways sounds like a simple uh, title, but it kind of actually once you've seen the film, it comes. It means a lot more because it it becomes this very significant moment. Obviously, the undiscovered country, very kind of evocative Shakespearean title. The Wrath of Khan. I mean, we talked about all these in previous episodes, but I think they all have different things going for them in a way. I guess arguably, the Voyage Home is a bit of a nothingy title. Um, they could have gone with something a bit more wacky somehow. Yeah, but yeah. You know, but again, maybe who cares? Because the film is amazing and we love it. And there's a lot of... And no well, one calls it that anyway. I mean, a bit like no one calls... Uh, you, you know, everyone calls any film Star Trek. Uh, that one, everyone calls the one with the, the one whales. With the whales yeah. it, kind of, it kind of acquired an extra... A sort of... I guess by reaching beyond the fandom, it acquired uh, a name, an unofficial name that actually has stuck 
at least as much as its real name has in some ways. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, beyond, it, I like the the nature of it because it's sort of trying to suggest that level of adventure and that Star Trek is again going out. I mean, because that that was the big that was the big thing with the fir- those first two Abrams films. They are they barely leave Earth. You know, they barely go anywhere, really. You know, they're, they're very, very much, you know, contained within a very small sort of geographical area, if you think about it. Whereas Beyond, at least, was trying to push out there, you know, and you see in the trailer, you know, Idris Elba saying, this is where the frontier pushes back and all this kind of thing. And I, and I get that. But, I mean, the thing with Beyond was really, it didn't really do that in the end anyway as a film. It was good, but it didn't really do it. It didn't really do what it promised. So the the title, you know, in all, it almost doesn't fit what you end up getting in a way. But you're right. Maybe it could have done with another another addition to it beyond something, you know. But then, th- but then it could have been a bit more, a bit too constrained if you'd done beyond the horizon. People might go, "Well, what does the what is the horizon in this context?" You know, you've got you, you've got to play that balance, haven't you, between vague and also symbolic, and and they don't always get it right. And I think. With beyond, it's maybe yeah, like you say, a little bit too vague. Well, anyway, moving beyond uh, ah, the inverse for good. the time being, and and who knows, maybe we will eventually return to that uh, to the, that you know film sub franchise. But it's been a it's been a pretty rocky road for the last few years trying to get another one off the ground. But um, who knows? It's not impossible that there'll, there'll be more to come. Star Trek Discovery. I guess maybe the first thing to mention is, and we haven't really talked about these previously, although we could have talked about the significance of calling the next generation the next generation, uh, calling it Discovery. I, when I first heard they were going to um, launch a new Star Trek series, uh, I, well, I sort of assumed it would be named after the ship. And then I was thinking, what's the ship going to be? And I was thinking it's going to be one of those space shuttles. It's going to be like Endeavour or you know, something like that. So Discovery, I think, was a was a perfect choice. Yeah. Um, and it kind of... I feel like they've sort of tried to sell us on the idea that somehow Star Trek Discovery is about discovery. But again, you could say that that is almost as nebulous and vague as beyond because every Star Trek series could be described as being about <laughs> discovery. It's kind of, do you know what I mean? It's True. like, it's not yeah. really telling you that much. Whereas you could argue that Voyager, okay, maybe every Star Trek series is kind of about voyaging, except possibly DS9, but I guess there's that sense in Voyager of kind of going further than anyone's been before and kind of, you know, being out there, maybe. I mean, you know, maybe there's a deliberate attempt to tie the name of the ship into the kind of tone of the show. Um, but anyway, whatever we make of Discovery as the title, it has, I think, one of the most intriguing uh, titles for a uh, pilot or a premiere of any of the Star Trek series with the Vulcan Hello. I think that's a fantastic title because it sounds quite specific but it's also until you watch the episode extremely unclear what it might be referring to it 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 seems quite random it seems like a very strange thing to title the episode and i remember you know the wait for the you know for star trek to come on back on the tv and we knew the names of these first few episodes i think we knew it certainly we knew the first two the vulcan hello and battle at the binary stars well battle at the binary stars you can kind of imagine what you're going to get to some degree the vulcan hello could be almost anything. All we know is it's going to involve Vulcans somehow. Now, actually, the story doesn't really involve Vulcans that much, but this idea of the Vulcan hello becomes quite a strong, uh, you, you know, it's a key point of the episode. And it's only by watching the episode that we find out what it is and what it means. So it's one of those great titles, I think, that lures you in with a sort of intriguing phrase that you actually don't understand. And then once you've seen it, 
it means something. Do you know what I mean? It, it, the title only means something. I suppose it's kind of going back to these ideas from linguistics that we talked about right at the beginning about, you know, does the, what's the relationship between the signifier and the signified? And is there any kind of, does the signifier mean anything until it's attached to, do, do you know what I mean? Does it mean anything in its own right? Or does it only mean something when you kind of understand the context uh, and so on? But for me anyway, I think it's a great, a great title for an episode because of that element of drawing you in kind of intriguing you as to you know what are we talking about where are we going to go with this yeah and i I think in a way it's the most ambiguous title probably since caretaker because Mm. broken bow has a symbolism to it you know if you're thinking about a series all about uh adventure you know and and the bro the broken bow you've got emissary which again is a little bit nebulous but if you know kind of what that means you'll get the gist Encounter at Farpoint is adventure, exploration, which fits next gen. And so, I mean, and, and you can't really class the original series as having a normal pilot in a way, can you? <laughs> I suppose. So, you know, but I, so really the Vulcan Hello, I always caretaker, I know we've talked about this before. I think you might have talked about this with, with Lee. It, it it does it doesn't really specify anything to do with doesn't suggest Voyager's mission statement in any way, and 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 this and this doesn't do that for Discovery either. You know, Battle at the Binary Stars is is that pulpy pulpy kind of B movie science fiction title, and it's wonderful in that sense. But neither of them are there. You know, it's not um, something like Encounter at Rigel or you know Voyage to you know whatever. Uh, so so yeah, it is interesting, and I, I think it sort of tries to ground it in a a race that you're very aware of. Even maybe if you're a tangential Star Trek fan, you'll probably know roughly who the Vulcans are, or you'll have an idea, maybe. Um, so yeah, it has it has a level of intrigue that is very interesting, definitely. It's also, of course, it is a hello, it's a greeting. I mean, you know, this is Star Trek coming back. It's kind of saying. Hi guys, you know here we are. We're still here. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's interesting. You think of a Vulcan hello. Obviously, we mainly think of Vulcans as saying goodbye. We th- but the Vulcan greeting, you know, the live, love, live long and prosper greeting, which can be a hello. I mean, it's a hello in uh, in first contact. We tend to think of it as something that they say when they're they're leaving, or there's a kind of moment of parting. But it certainly can work as a hello as well. And that symbol, I think particularly in the years since Discovery, to be perfectly honest, has become sort of emblematic of the whole of Star Trek more than it ever was before, to the extent that the cast will all be making Vulcan hand signals, uh, you know, live long and prosper signals um, when they're photographed. There's a kind of expectation that that is how Star Trek identifies itself somehow, as much as with the Delta Shield, as much as with this other kind of iconography. Um, And I do wonder, you know, is that sort of deliberate on some level? Although a Vulcan hello in this context means shoot first, don't ask questions. Uh, very un-Vulcan, essentially. That there's lingering this sort of idea of a Vulcan greeting is actually something that, in terms of the fandom and in terms of Star Trek, kind of outside of the Star Trek universe, has become iconic somehow. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's funny you should say, you know, describe it there as well. I, it almost feels a little bit like a... Um... <laughs> a gangster sort of move like that someone would use I'm going to give you a Vulcan hello you know like <laughs> you're going to snap your neck <laughs> so it's quite it's yeah. quite maybe they had that in the back of their minds as well who knows 
who knows Battle at the Binary Stars uh, I think is great you're right it's got that kind of pulpy feel it feels quite historic it feels quite sort of iconic it it taps into this sort of law and there's a great uh, later on Lorca has this line he says you know you were at the binaries or you were at the Battle of the Binaries or something the fact that you know even in the space of a couple of episodes it's become this kind of uh, significant event in universe. Um, so Wolf 359. It works, it works quite well. Exactly. It's a Wolf 359. Yeah. And to do that in your second episode and to kind of <laughs> make that stick uh, is kind of quite impressive. It is good. Speaking of Lorca, we then have another fantastic episode titled Context is for Kings. Oh, yeah. I loved Lorca's speech in that episode. I mean, I think mm. that in some ways that's the real pilot if not for Discovery as a whole, then for season one of Discovery. Yeah. That's the kind of episode that that kind of brings it all together, gets the crew together, sort of sets up shop in a way. Um, and that speech absolutely seems to be key. And and obviously it's, it's a great uh, line to pull out for the title. I also sort of wonder, is there an echo there of the original series episode, The Conscience of the King? Because it's it's such a sort of similar phrase. Yeah. Kind of, you feel that can't help influencing them somewhere um and arguably is that a clue to the fact that Lorca is not what he seems to be because that's an episode all about a guy who you know is presenting himself as this kind of amiable actor but is in fact a you know murderous psychopath well, basically i was, was going to say and here we have in yeah. context is for kings a guy who's presenting <laughs> himself as a starfleet captain and yet he has a pretty dark secret he's not really who he appears to be so yeah. Yeah. i don't know if it's a stretch to say that there's that's a deliberate reference but it it seems like quite a big coincidence in some ways that it's such a strong echo of that episode title. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, they're both Nazis at the end of the day. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, they, they definitely had the original series in mind in so many ways, didn't they, with this series and when they began. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. It is it is a fantastic title, though, this. It's great. This, this really sort of establishes that they're going for something you know story titles that are not prosaic like the old-fashioned side of star trek episodes and that's great because i think i think it really adds to adds to something you know and this yeah this is as much as i think the vulcan hello is actually a great episode of tv this is this is kind of the pilot episode and i think in in some ways and i think this is a title for a pilot actually it fits Discovery, I think, because Discovery is not as quite as easy to pigeonhole as a show, certainly from the outset, as many of the other Star Trek series. So, yeah, it definitely works on multitude of, of levels, I think. I mean, I would say Discovery Season 1 probably has the best titles, uh, or certainly the, the fewest boring titles, of quite possibly any Star Trek series uh before or since i mean it it you know whatever you think of it and people's opinions vary and i do think discovery has every year it's come back almost as a different show in some ways uh, and each season is is very different from the one before but um i do think that the titles fit quite well for what they were doing in that first season uh, and they're they're very evocative they're very kind of intriguing uh they you know they generally feel like they've taken some care over them the next one is an extraordinary title the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry which i think is is second in line for the longest star trek title uh right after for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky now both of them i think they sound like a kind of classical quotation uh for the world is hollow and i've touched the sky is obviously is taken from the episode we talked about this way back probably the first one of these that we did this one as far as i know is not 
or at least if this is a quotation, I haven't managed to find it. I don't know about you, but it it feels very much like it should be. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. feels like a kind of old saying or, you know, something biblical almost. It kind of is what, to me, it harks back to. But I haven't been able to find uh, the actual reference point for it, which makes you think if it isn't, then whoever came up with that title was really on quite a grandiose uh, trip in a way yeah. at that time to you know to come up with that for for that episode is quite an extraordinary choice really yeah and because it, it's such it's so it's so evocative I, I haven't found any trace of it either you know if you if you if you break it down the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry you know it's if you if you I suppose if you boil it down to its essence it is that there is no mercy you know ultimately you know we we have there is there is no mercy and I suppose if if you if you play in terms of the episode um you know they're at war with the klingons there's a constant battle going on as to whether you know how much Lorca pushes this crew into you know being combatants as opposed to scientists and this kind of thing so i don't know you can you can read it on many levels with all the different things going on i suppose in the episode you know there's all the stuff with Voch as well and all this but it, it's it's great you know it has, it has a simple explanation in many ways but the it's so much more evocative than you know no mercy or something like that that you, that you probably would have had <laughs> in the original, you know, or it probably would have just been called mercy or something like that in, in the next generation era. You know, this is great. This, this really is, is punching it up to a different level. Closest I can find, I just had another look online is there's a William Blake quotation. The lamb misused breeds public strife and yet forgives the butcher's knife, which obviously carries uh, at least some of, of the same ideas in that. I don't know that it's close enough to say that it's necessarily inspired by that, but um, there's similar ballpark, maybe. But I think uh, an amazing title, anyway, um, whatever you think. Uh, followed by Choose Your Pain, another great one. I feel like that one needs an exclamation mark, really. It, this is one of those ones, it sounds like a Klingon title. Uh, we've had a few of those before, but, you know, Choose Your Pain. It's kind of, <laughs> this is yeah, something yeah, you yeah. can almost imagine, I don't know, in, like in one of those interactive board games with Gowron shouting at you through the old VHS <laughs> tape or, you know, or, or start the Klingon's your uh, pain. PC game or whatever. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it's a great, it's a great title, I think. Um, and, and another, you know, strong episode as well yeah it's dark it's dark isn't it i mean choose your pain is you know it's messed up really it has it, it, it's it's the kind of episode it's kind of title you wouldn't necessarily get in star trek usually but there i suppose but it fits discovery's quite sort of bleak nature in this first season doesn't it really because 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 much as much as i think it's the best season of discovery and i still stand by that so far it is pretty bleak <laughs> i think this is kind of like this kind of really sums it up. It also harks back slightly, uh, speaking of the final frontier, to Kirk's I Need My Pain. Uh, I mean, Kirk is someone who does choose his pain in that film. He refuses to let go of it. You know, he chooses to hold on to it. And I think, you know, even to just bring up the idea of pain in that way, it's sort of, you know, for long-term Star Trek fans, it can't help having a slight echo of that. The following episode, uh, for my money easily the best episode of Discovery from the first three seasons and also one of the best titles, Lethe. Now, this, I think, is a fantastic one. It's mysterious. It's mythic. It calls back to classical uh, ancient Greek mythology and the river of forgetfulness. It's also slightly ambiguous what it refers to in the episode, which I love, because on one level you could say this is an episode about a secret memory. Okay, the Lethe is the river where people go to forget who they were and to kind of lose their memories. So there's this idea of something that's kind of 
a memory that's secluded or hidden or kind of wiped or whatever. And I guess you have that on one level with Sarek having this sort of secret memory that Burnham is uh, finding her way into. But you can't help thinking this is also the episode where Burnham and Ash Tyler start to kind of uh, become closer. And I think where these first rumblings started to come out in the fandom anyway, of this, this suspicion that maybe uh, Ash Tyler wasn't quite what he said he was and that there was this, you know, I mean, the fans kind of cracked this uh, massive twist long before it was played out on screen because they'd worked out, for example, that Javid Iqbal was not a real person and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and that there was something suspicious about Vogue. But I think very interesting, this idea of, you know, someone who forgets their own past, who doesn't even know really who they were. And obviously is the perfect, uh, sort of illusion for Ash, who's, who's someone who, you know, he believes he's a human being. And in fact, he's forgotten his entire past. He's forgotten his identity. Yeah, it has lo- some lovely allusions to it, doesn't it? It's it's really good, and it, you know, it's you know, we talked about in the in the last one that we can't quite find the the exact meaning. It sounds evocative, but we can't find the exact meaning. This really does hit mythology head on. You know, utilizes something from mythology in a really clever way. I'm also reading as well that because this was written by Joe Minoski, who was a classic sort of Voyager. Um, writer from the 90s era of Trek. Not to mention Darmok. I mean, talking about well, yeah. know, classic mytho- classical mythology and kind of ancient the ancient uh, stories. Um, obviously, he's the one who, who brought Gilgamesh into Star Trek universe, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was also involved in DS9, because in the episode Distant Voices, he introduces a race called the Lethians as well. Um, oh, and that's Joe Minoski as well. Those, those, those were the guys. That, I mean, that that episode is creepy. I always that's the one where Doctor Bashir is haunted by that alien guy, isn't it? In, in his in his head, really creepy. He's episode, turning thirty, so he kind of has a, a, a weird midlife crisis, <laughs> right? <now. laughs> yeah, a, a typically and sort of himself as an old man and all this. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, a classic Julian Bashir midlife crisis. But <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, it's again, again though, sort of. <laughs> Playing with the mind, playing with forgetfulness and memory and that kind of thing. So it's yeah, I, obviously Jovanovsky has a real interest in this. Um, but it's yeah, it's a great, it's a great use, it's a great title. Yeah, and like you say, it's one. Of, I think it's definitely one of the best episodes of Discovery so far. It's also the first of three consecutive episodes to draw on classical illusions. I mean, obviously Star Trek has done that before. I'd say we've probably, if we were to top them up, and we haven't, I imagine we'd find that Shakespeare was the kind of strongest source of kind of quotation and paraphrase and so on but discovery definitely um leaning into the kind of you know ancient greece uh and 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 the roman world as well and here we have magic to make the sanest man go mad which is a quotation from the iliad by homer there is the heat of love the pulsing rush of longing the lover's whisper irresistible magic to make the sanest man go mad um it's another another great title, I think, and and again another great episode. Totally kind of batshit crazy episode, really. Uh, I mean, this was Discovery really living up to the magic mushroom uh, model <laughs> of what they were doing, I think, and just doing something quite wacky and 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 mad. But it's a nice. I think it's it's nice that it gives it this quite uh, overblown title in a way. I think it, it it fits quite well with that quite overblown, quite um, bizarre episode. Yeah, and yeah, it's a time loop. It's a time loop episode, so it's catnip for me. I love time loop episodes. Comes from the Iliad, though, doesn't it? This title, book uh, fourteen, line two hundred and seventeen, which uh, apparently refers to Aphrodite's sash or girdle, um, a love charm 
that the goddess gives to Hera in order to beguile Zeus, which I guess, you know, tracks with the the the, the very core sort of romantic aspect with Burnham and Ash in this episode. So yeah, you know, he's working on different levels, but it's just great. I mean, I, I, in a way, I, I mean, I can understand why, why this comes from Greek myth, but this could, in a way, this could have been a Shakespeare title for me. This could have been something you could pluck from. Oh yeah, for sure, from Shakespeare, definitely. I, in fact, I would have guessed if, if it was a quiz, I would have guessed this was a Shakespeare one. So, but you know, they, it all flows into each other, doesn't it? Shakespeare got loads from Greek myth and all this kind of thing, didn't he? So you know, in many ways, so it's you know, it all flows into the same river, I guess. Well, it's almost a line of iambic pentameter, which might be one reason mm. for thinking that you know, magic so. to make the sanest man go mad. And and that is that could be an issue of translation insofar as, obviously, the classics are generally translated into the idiom of the language they're being translated into. And so I'm sure there is a translation of Homer in which it's all done in iambic pentameter. I don't know whether that's the, the version that that quotation is taken from um or not but it certainly that would kind of fit after that we have civis pacem parabellum uh 4th to 5th century ad latin phrase if you want peace prepare for war another uh great line i mean this uh, and i don't think as far as i remember i haven't seen discovery season one for a while i don't think it's glossed in the episode unlike um cicero's uh inter arma enim silent leges which has to be explained by admiral ross i think in that episode but this is uh you know it's a great one and it's a great in a way not a great episode i would say i I think it's a slightly slight misfire of an episode uh, in this season anyway but a really good title and i think it encapsulates in a way something of discoveries darker slightly less idealistic worldview in this kind of war storyline kind of what we thought we were getting when we thought Lorca was kind of who he said he was we sort of thought we were getting a captain who is not an idealist who is a pragmatist who is you know he's he's more of a jack bauer than a captain picard if you know what i mean he's kind of willing to to push things and to to do the wrong thing and so on for the right reasons um and i suppose this phrase very much sort of ties in a little bit to that kind of pragmatism uh in a sense and this idea that goes to the you know the central question for star trek going you know over 50 odd years you know is this a you know is starfleet a military or is it you you know Mm. in the jj films they call it a peacekeeping armada don't they yeah you know what is starfleet is it about science is it about exploration is it about uh defense it's a kind of slightly vexed question. And obviously in the real world, you know, we've had this whole thing with Trump uh, bringing in as well as NASA wanting his space force, which is a kind of militarized version of NASA. Uh, there's sort of some of the same questions, I think. Um, and I don't know if you watch For All Mankind, but there's the same kind of element there with For All Mankind, because there the kind of Cold War is playing out in a different way in space. And therefore space has to become slightly more militarized. It has to be uh, you know, NASA can't be quite as sort of pure and um, detached from all that in some ways as as maybe they did manage to be. So it's a kind of central question for Star Trek, I think, and and definitely this title puts the puts its finger right on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I uh, not to shill something else, but I on uh, make its own my, the Star Trek Picard podcast that I, I am involved in it with. I had a wonderful chat with Brandy Jackler, um, obviously friend of this network and the show about this episode quite ended up quite, being quite an emotional conversation actually just about generally several different things but I, I also i also gave her the uh 
the test. Now, if you've been looking like at Memory Alpha as much as I have, you might know this already, but I gave her the test. I said, how many episode titles are in Latin across the run of Star Trek? Now, I think, I, I don't know the answer, but I remember, I think Lee brought this particular factoid to one of our previous Did things, he? and I think it was about eight or nine. But since then, okay. obviously, we've had Lower Decks has at least one, and Picard has two. Yeah. So I'm going to guess sort of 11 or 12 by now, maybe. Well, you're not far off. It's actually now 14, because in the modern right, era, okay. we've got the Etin Arcadia Ego ones from Picard, mm. Veritas from lower decks which obviously we're going to get to all these and terra firma part one and two for discovery as well ah, yeah okay three. of course yeah. so yeah 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 it's 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 very interesting how you know they're still playing on this and this this they the latin titles well actually the latin yeah the latin titles go back to sort of the end of next gen i think and then since then they've started using them so they don't go quite all the way back to the original series which is almost a surprise actually i would have thought they might have snuck a latin title into the 60s given how evocative they all were but you know there you go maybe it's once they became a bit cooler and a bit more highbrow and a bit more sort of you know you can imagine picard quoting latin you can't quite imagine the original series is more into shakespeare which is a bit more sort of bombastic a bit more kind of earthy and human and do you know what i mean true Uh, yeah so we tend to associate the romans with this slightly superior slightly kind of vulcan yeah. aspect although obviously also then there's like the bread and circuses side of the romans and the the, the kind of barbarity of all that and so on mm. but mm. i don't know i wonder if there's an element that it seems kind of refined it seems sort of sophisticated uh it seems a bit sort of exclusive somehow uh which arguably you could say the same about shakespeare i mean we talked way back on one of our first episodes about how gene roddenberry was kind of slightly ostracized in world war ii for quoting shakespeare at the drop of a hat um because his comrades were not impressed by that basically yeah. he hoped they might be <laughs> but uh you know i'd say that that kind of erudition in a way certainly grows in star trek from next gen onwards because it becomes and maybe particularly within next gen because it becomes such a part of the identity of that show partly i think as an extension of picard and his identity as this kind of you know in this weird sort of merging of picard and patrick stewart as the you know as it famously said on his door unknown British Shakespearean actor who kind of brings all this, you know, culture and uh, sort of serious high culture along with him from Stratford. Finally, for the, the the last episode in the first, whatever they call it, first chapter, first chunk, first part of Discovery's first season, Into the Forest I Go. This is uh, part of a quotation from a poem by John Muir, if that's how it's pronounced. Into the Forest I Go to Lose My Mind and Find My Soul. Great evocative title yet again, I think. Uh, it certainly gives a sense of kind of propulsion into something kind of exciting to come. And obviously this is the episode that ends with them spore jumping to an unknown uh, location and, un- you know, out of kind of, into the, into the unknown, into the, into the woods, I suppose, in a sense. It always makes me think of the musical Into the Woods and everyone shouting, yeah. Into the Woods, Into the Woods. You know? <laughs> Which, fortunately, yeah. they didn't go with that because uh, that would have been even more uh, sort of explicit. But I suppose there's that yeah. sense of like, you, you know, as in that show, we go into the woods to get lost and to find ourselves. Do you know what I mean? That's mm. that's mm. sort of the idea of all those fairy tales, that it's you you leave safety and the known behind and you go out into the unknown, which is very much what happens in Star Trek anyway. And it's out there that you learn who you really are, that you kind of face these big questions that you, you, you know, your your 
life is transformed and your identity is forged in some way, which I guess is there in that quotation. Interesting that, again, we got the idea of losing my mind. I mean, you know, we already had the magic that makes sane men go mad. You know, the other half, the missing half of that quotation is, yes, you're finding yourself, but in order to find yourself, you first have to lose your reason, in a sense. And I suppose kind of submit to the madness of the of the forest, to submit to that kind of uh, alien, strange, irrational uh, existence in a way. And certainly Discovery is the show that, that goes there, you know, with its magic mushroom jumping ship and, and this kind of, you know, it does require a degree of kind of, as we get in season two, don't we? You know, Pike basically saying, look, I'm just going to, this is going to require a degree of faith because, uh, it all sounds nuts, essentially. Discovery is kind of the show that, that goes there that wants to, uh, leave the safe and reasonable behind and, and, go out there and do mad things and and uh, that that's where the crew are going to kind of find out who they are they're going to be forged by that and 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 personalizes it as well into the forest i go and i think i think they said that they wanted it to be about burnham's journey throughout those you know to find her soul like you know like you're sort of saying in those first few episodes you know and obviously discovery is the burnham show in many ways for for better or worse and it so it's a, it's a good example of how it's really personalizing all of these aspects. You don't tend to get many Star Trek episodes with I in there, you know, unless it's like I Borg or whatever, you know, but like, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it is this kind of personalization definitely cuts to the heart of what Discovery is going for and, and really doubles down on as time goes on, really. Right. So then after the uh, kind of mid season break, we have Despite Yourself. Now, this is. An interesting choice. I guess we had the I before Into the Forest I Go. Now we have Despite Yourself. So again, we've got a a personal pronoun, which is sort of an interesting uh, choice there. Despite Yourself, obviously, I suppose it conjures the idea of kind of going against your inclination or going against your nature, which is exactly what you have to do in the mirror universe to survive, is you have to go against your instinct, you know, if you're not native to uh, to that world. Just as arguably, I suppose Lorca has had to act sort of, uh, you know, in spite of himself in a way in the prime universe. Um, it's interesting that they don't go with a mirror pun. I mean, mostly the mirror universe episodes, you know, we've had the shattered mirror, 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 you, you know, mirror, it's, it's always through the looking glass, all these kind of puns and jokes and references around mirrors. Discovery doesn't choose to do that here. Now, partly maybe that's because this was a massive twist and they didn't want to give the game away. Although it has to be said again, the fandom had guessed and had kind of put the pieces together and, and worked it out by the time it aired. So maybe they didn't want to kind of give that away with a title that would make it pretty obvious that's what they were doing. But it's an interestingly, it's hard to say it's exactly a low key title, but it's one of the least sort of grandiose of the season in a way. And yet this is the one that pulls us into perhaps the most overblown uh, environment that we're going to see somehow with with the Mirror Universe and the Mirror Universe reinvented on a kind of big budget and with, you know, even more bling than we've ever seen before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that is the point you know in the in that despite yourself suggests you know a lack of control or a a sense of a, a, a darkness within it in a way and I, sp- I suppose that that links to the next episode as well doesn't it really it's that idea of duality maybe a little bit you know despite yourself suggests something else 
that is going on. You know, you do something despite yourself, despite your better nature, despite your, you know, the better angels of your nature. So I think maybe that's part of what what this is. And then, as I say, it plays into the wolf inside in the next episode about, you know, what's going on internally, really. And 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 that again, again though, that links that links to into the forest I go. You know, and these. The fact that these titles may be really expressive, but they're actually about that journey within, which is probably one of the reasons I like this first season the most, because I love that kind of I love that kind of storytelling. I love that kind of storytelling where you take an a really sort of expansive, even overblown concept and you make it about a personal inward journey. And I I think that's great. I think dis- and I think Discovery gets it right. For the most part, you know, it's not perfect in this first season more than any of the others. So, yeah, I, th- I think that there is connective tissue with all of these. And The Wolf Inside, another great title. I mean, obviously, I guess, alluding to The Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. In fact, this is a show that has two wolves in sheep's clothing because we've got Ash and we've also got Lorca, both of whom are not who they seem to be, both of whom are kind of uh, clad outwardly in the appearance of something respectable and acceptable and and good and actually you know harboring something evil and and scary and kind of um you know something with teeth uh inside there but another great episode title i think then we have vaulting ambition this is a line from macbeth i suppose Lorca is macbeth in this kind of parallel here and i guess there's that idea that maybe for Lorca, it is this kind of overleaping this kind of uh you know, reaching too far, being too ambitious, trying to seize everything that ultimately leads to his ruin. I wonder also if there's a sense, the parallel between Lorca and Macbeth is that obviously, from the point of view of the audience watching Macbeth, we kind of know everything that's going on. We know what he's kind of wrestling with. We know the decisions he's making and so on. But from the point of view of everyone else in the play, other than his wife, you know, from the point of view of Duncan, for example, who he murders... Macbeth is a bit like Lorca. He's the villain who <laughs> is a hidden villain. Do you know what I mean? Mm, he's kind yeah. of presenting himself as a as a decent guy. He's the host. He's kind of, um, he, you know, he, he he's the one, uh, you could say Lorca is the host on Discovery in a way, in, in, on the Discovery, insofar as it's his ship and he's kind of welcoming people on board like Burnham and so on. And like Macbeth, he's the one who's actually plotting something uh, pretty nasty that no one is aware of. So I guess there's a kind of kind of a parallel there. Uh, and like Macbeth, he's going to be undone ultimately. You know, he's not going to be successful, and he's and he's not going to be defeated. I suppose that's maybe one of the key things. He's not really going to be defeated by the crew of the Discovery. He's actually going to be defeated by uh, the Emperor, isn't he? That he's you know that he's yeah. trying to overtake in a sense this is you could see you know maybe emperor Giorgio is kind of duncan with a bit more savvy uh, <laughs> yeah know, she's she's not as easy to, yeah. to off um in to a vault. bed sort of thing yeah yeah exactly but um interesting parallel there and then mm. following that another shakespeare so we've got two in a row two shakespeare uh references in a row what's past is prologue obviously we had this one before with ds9 past prologue uh same reference point just uh, slightly more accurate quotation i suppose from the tempest just this idea really that everything leads up to this so i suppose this sense that this is the conclusion i think it is isn't it isn't this the conclusion of the mirror yeah. arc 
it all um, goes and off. Every, and everything, mm. actually everything in Ever Since Context is for Kings, arguably, is a prologue to this. It all has led up to this moment, and this is the kind of payoff. Um, so I guess that's what we get here. Yeah, it's all, it, it, it builds to, yeah, to a pretty epic conclusion here. And, and yeah, I think there's a real, there is a real sense of grandeur to these titles, actually, to, to, to a degree that I, I don't always rec- remember. This, a grandeur, but again, an internalization. I keep thinking, when I'm thinking of the wolf inside, I kept thinking of the enemy within in, in the original series. You know, again, that duality. And then the next one, the war without the war within. Like, you know, I mean, it really, it's all there. It's very clear what this what this season is sort of balancing with all of these very outward grandiose titles, but very much about these journeys. So, yeah, it's, it's only now we're talking about it. It's really becoming very clear and apparent what quite what they're doing with these, with these, these titles that are both ones they're creating themselves, but also using these, Shakespearean, Latin, Greek, you know, ancient Greek examples, really. It's very good. Well, and I think that's what's great about these titles is that they add something. I suppose that's the thing. And and ironically, they add something at a time when they made the decision to stop putting them up, you know, until we get to Lower Decks. We don't actually Mm. see any of these titles. We only know them because, you know, CBS or whoever released them. And I guess Netflix put them on the the descriptions. And in some cases, you know, they've been questions over the accuracy of them they've been i mean we'll come on to when we talk about discovery season three quite a few of the titles changed at some point and you know we don't so far as far as i know know the reasons that they changed or you know when exactly those changes took place but it's kind of strange in a way that these titles you know a bit like um I mean, The X-Files was a show that also did this. You know, the titles are known to the fans and I guess known to people in uh, the, you know, media around around TV, you know, who are writing Radio Times or whatever it is, but they're not actually part of the sort of text on screen, you, you, you know, the, the, the text in a kind of metaphorical sense. They're not, they're not part of the actual thing that you're presented with um, in that sense. Um, you're right. Then we have these two quite interesting last year of the season i think the war without the war within and will you take my hand we've got a lot of w's going on i don't know if that's Mm. uh, deliberate or not um the war without the war within now this feels very much like a quotation i couldn't find a source for it except that there's a book about virginia wolf uh which is called the war without the war within which i guess is about her internal struggle and also uh the, the you know literally the war going on at the time it's a book of her diaries I wondered if it's a quotation from Wolf in one of the diaries. I have to say, I asked my mother, who is a Virginia Wolf scholar, if she recognised it, and she said it didn't ring any bells. And she's, you know, it could, you know, obviously it could be. I don't think she has an encyclopedic knowledge of every word that Virginia Wolf ever wrote, but <laughs> she, she didn't think it necessarily was a quotation. But it's quite a specific. It feels like a phrase, you know. It feels like a sort of um, a well-worn phrase, but in fact. I struggled to find anything online that is not either that book about Virginia Woolf or the Discovery episode. I don't know about you. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting one. I suppose we could say if it is a reference to Virginia Woolf, is this like the ultimate uh, sort of deep cut tie in that we had the wolf inside and now we've got, you know, now we've got the wolf with two O's uh, well, you know, inside I, I, in this one. I'm, you know, I'm surprised they did. I'm surprised they didn't just call it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in that case. Yeah, you know, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but with one O. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> that would have been good. Who's afraid of the wolf inside? They, they could have done absolutely. Yeah, and then we have Will you take my hand? Now you pointed out we had into the forest I go. Now it's Will you take my hand? Again, there's that kind of personal element. This is an odd one. Again, this is one that sounds like it should be. 
is it a quotation? Is it, I mean, it makes you think, the things it makes me think of anyway are the marriage ceremony, I suppose. Uh, that doesn't quite seem right. It, it sounds like a song lyric. It, for some reason, it makes me think of the Beatles song, Strawberry Fields, although the line is not like that, but it's, you know, we'll, what is the line? Will you take me down where, whatever it is, to Strawberry Fields? Uh, it, it feels like something like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's a question. It's an invitation. It's a strange one, I think. And it, it, it's quite evocative. It's quite kind of, but it's, it feels quite personal. It feels quite gentle weirdly you know the idea of taking my hand take you know come with me take my hand hold my hand it's very much not a battle it's not choosing pain it's not uh vaulting and but do you know what i mean it's, it's not all these quite active aggressive things it, it sounds quite um tender somehow and it's an interesting choice i think to end the season like that yeah and i think maybe it represents a level of trust and hope that maybe they wanted to embody the end of that season with you know the season ends on 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 a hopeful note it ends with you know the war over with the klingons it ends with you know the federation a little bit more you know in theory going back a little bit more into where we get to with the original series you know that kind that kind of direction will you take my hand in a way there is a little bit of mystery and magic to that as a title i think will you take my hand implies like you say that that intimacy that closeness but also trust and adventure it, it almost sounds like a doctor who title it sounds like the sort of thing the doctor would say you know take my hand come with me we'll go on a journey you know so there is that intimacy and that and that closeness but and that personal aspect but i think there's also a level of let's explore let's go you know will you take my hand on this journey and so i i, I like it in that context really so yeah it, it's it's this 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 season you know when you look we talk we talked about it in le- at length, but if you, when you look back, it's, it's cracking the, the, the amount the amount of really great titles that work in so many different ways, even when they're not quotations from something, is superb. Really, there's very very f- I don't think there's any really this season that aren't you know really really interesting and 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 play into many of the themes going on in each of these episodes. Something that I think can't necessarily be said for the next episode on my list, which is the first of the short treks, Runaway, uh, which I, you know, I enjoyed. I think it's a fine episode. This is a fairly, this feels a little bit like a a, a Rick Berman era yeah, episode yeah. title. The only difference is there's no the on it. It's not the Runaway. The, the, r- <laughs> runaway. It's just Runaway. But um, not a huge amount, I think, to say about that one. Followed up, though, it has to be said, by another great episode title, Calypso. Now, we already had Lethe, uh, where there was a classical illusion that was not mentioned in the episode, but that kind of gave a slightly different spin on the episode if you knew what it meant. Here we have Calypso, not a reference to the music, which I think is what I was yeah. thinking when they released yeah. the title of the episode. It was going to be, I was imagining Picard doing his, you know, salsa <laughs> dancing or whatever. Um, <laughs> But obviously a reference that only makes sense when you realise that this is an episode which is borrowing from the Odyssey and that Craft, the character Craft, is based on the character of Crafty Odysseus in the Odyssey. And Clara and I did an episode on this way back where we went in some detail into the kind of parallels between these stories and and Michael Chabon's uh, decision to basically riff on a story from the Odyssey in Star Trek by telling this story. But Calypso is one of those great titles that, you know, A, it absolutely cements that connection in case you were kind of wondering whether it was deliberate or not, or whether it was, you you know, how intentional it was. Uh, And B, 
it only you know it only really makes sense once you've seen the episode and you've understood that connection but again it ties that story into this kind of broader uh cultural fabric in a sense and it's very much i suppose in that sense of you know shabon has this uh argument about fiction as fan fiction that you know all creative work is essentially sort of standing on the shoulders of giants that, you know, you're interacting with what's gone before. And I suppose by writing futurist, you know, even by Star Trek standards, futuristic story, uh, but tying into, you know, one of the most ancient stories, it's, he's kind of doing the same thing. He's writing Star Trek fanfic that is also Homeric fanfic on some level. Which, it, which only someone with his knowledge could really do in many ways. And I mean, this 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 is definitely the most. I think still is probably the most famous short trek, and the one that mo- most mo- people remember the most, and I think has been the most venerated. And I, I confess, I haven't I haven't yet seen the second season of short treks because they've not streamed anywhere, um, and I haven't bought the the, D- the DVD or the Blu-ray. Um, and I know quite a few of those went down well, and there's some interesting titles, but I think this. Um, for all those reasons, has gone down as one of the most, you know, well-known. And also for the fact it, it it might well yet tie in in some way to actually what's going to go on in the series. And that's still, you know, it feels like there is going to be some connective tissue there, you know, as the, as the, se- as the series goes on. So, yeah, it's, it's very good. And it's a very, very evocative title and a, and a really good piece of, of drama as well. It's interesting, that question. Ironically, you know, Disco went to this massive length to get out of their kind of canon box by jumping to the far future. And yet they allowed Michael Shaban, who was, you know, who wasn't working on Picard at this point. This was just like a one-off and he was doing it. Yeah. For a bit of, like I said, it's almost like, I mean, not in a disparaging way. I think it's a beautiful episode, you know, but it is almost like a kind of bit of fanfic. It's very uh, sort of off the wall take. Um, and yet, they've allowed him to paint them into another massive continuity box yeah. <laughs> uh, that they are going to have to deal with somewhere along yeah. the line. And they've been yeah. sort of very tentatively teasing with the, the stuff with the computer in season three. But, you know, yeah. I think they will have to address it somehow. And I I would put money, and this is partly, I don't know, I know you loved the finale of Lost. I never got as far as the finale of Lost, but I know a lot of people felt with that show that there's an element of this kind of mystery box storytelling where you have to make up the solutions as you go along. Mm. And, and for mm. some people, they don't necessarily fit. I don't think they know where they're going with this one. I might yeah, be wrong. Maybe neither. they've got a plan. Maybe they had a plan all along for how it was going to tie in. I think this is like a massive... Uh, you know, um, index cards stuck on someone's wall of like, <laughs> oh shit, at some point we're going to have to work out what to do about this story because we've created this yeah. kind of continuity issue uh, that, yeah. you know, uh, and they've already got this issue. Why does the discovery A look so different now? And yet the discovery in Calypso is the old one. And, you know, I saw Jim Morehouse was speculating because he's a great apologist for these sorts of things. He was saying, well, you know, they just changed the design back at some point in that time period because Zora was bored or, you know, whatever. You can invent an explanation, (laughs) but ultimately I think they will have to address it, I imagine. Otherwise it does just sort of seem to exist outside of continuity. Mm. Uh, But anyway, a fantastic episode, great title. Mm. Um, And yeah, I think, I I mean, I enjoyed many of the second season of Short Treks, but I don't think any of them quite reached the heights of Calypso, to be perfectly Mm. honest. Um, Mm. After that, we had The Brightest Star, 
nice title feels mm. quite sort of classically star trek i suppose there's yeah. a kind of question what is that star is it hope is it starfleet is it saru is it the shuttle that georgia comes on you know what it what is the mm. brightest mm. star exactly but it certainly gives that idea of kind of hope and and awe and all this stuff that we kind of associate with with star trek and with uh you, you know with Rene picard looking up into the stars and mm. saru kind of doing the same thing here in a way yeah, it's a very nice, very Star Trek-y title, for sure. Then we have The Escape Artist. Lots of people love this short trek. I couldn't stand it, I have to say. <laughs> I found it really annoying, partly because I can't stand Harry Mudd in yeah, any I'm, incarnation. I'm, I'm the same. This did, not, this did not win me over. I guess the title is going for... It sounds like a sort of Charlie Chaplin movie or something to me. I don't know if that was the idea. I mean, obviously, you've got the idea of escapology and, like, Houdini and, and Houdini. these sorts of things. But mm. a sort of, I suppose, a kind of jokey caper maybe is what they're going for there and i guess that is pretty much what you get so mm. as much as i don't love that episode i think it's uh, it kind of makes sense as a title yeah right so on to discovery season two picking up the new season with brother again i suppose pretty pretty dull no, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's pretty dull it's pretty self-explanatory is it significant yeah. it's not the brother it's not or it's not my brother it's do you know what i mean just calling it yeah. brother is quite brother. um stark and i feel like they really missed a trick i mean we'll come to it in a couple of episodes time by not calling the klingon episode mother uh because that's the yeah. the best moment in that episode really is this idea of laurel as the mother of klingons and she says i mm. want you to call me mother uh and they could have done something you know brother mother i don't know pike in new eden talks about his father brother father mother they could end up with like tuvox uh you know list of um <laughs> you know in that voyager episode where he has mother's mother brother's yeah. brother <laughs> sister's <laughs> mother's aunt three times removed uh i don't know it's 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 a, it's a slightly um nothingy title but i suppose it 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 sells this thing that discovery season one has kind of skirted around that they've made michael burnham spock's sister and yet we haven't seen spock uh and here is spock and possibly there's also a bit of a pun of like oh brother you know here's spock but yeah uh, he's he's gone mad he's not here <laughs> you know that element of like okay something's kind of gone wrong here that's actually what i called my um my review of season two. Oh brother for, for <laughs> right. reasons that i won't bore people with but you can probably get the gist mm. um, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> yeah New Eden, I think, is an interesting title. Obviously, it's the name of the the planet in the episode. It's also kind of an oxymoron um, insofar as Eden is not new. It, you know, the, the one thing we know about Eden is it's kind of as old as, as you can get, in a sense. Um, and I suppose this episode taps into this kind of theme that really runs through Star Trek ever since The Cage of the kind of relationship between futuristic sci-fi uh, technology and this kind of almost Luddite sensibility. You know, these people who are kind of, uh, who want the simpler life. You know, we get Pike in the cage who just wants a horse and a picnic and so on. Um, here we have this sort of effectively kind of Luddite community. Um, I don't know whether also there's obviously an echo with the original series of The Way to Eden. And obviously this is the season of discovery that is tapping the most into the original series sort of iconography in a way with the uniforms and the Enterprise and Pike and Spock and everyone. So um, you kind of can't help thinking of that. But um, it's an interesting, interesting title. Again, I suppose it's fairly descriptive, but it kind of conjures something. I think the fact that it's sort of oxymoronic means that it conjures something. There's something interesting about it as a as a phrase, as a title. Yeah, no, it is good. It, you know, the biblical aspect as well, you know, the idea of utopia and 
that kind of thing. Um, although, the, the, you know, why, why anyone would want to be reminded of the way to Eden, though? I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, 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 you're on a hide into nothing there. Um, but no, it is, it is. It's a very good episode, actually. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it, it is a very interesting title. Followed by not mother, as I suggested, maybe it should have been, but <laughs> should points have of light. Now, this this is actually uh, a great title. I think it's a very strange episode um, because it's an extremely deep cut reference. This is a quotation from uh, a Next Generation episode, and it refers to Boreth, and it's from a line that is something that Kalesh, or if you talk to uh, Voke Tyler, Kalesh. Says, which is, uh, <laughs> which is, um, <laughs> they should, <laughs> they really missed out not having Sean Connery at some point in Star Trek, <laughs> uh, whether it's uh, for Shakari or Kalo. Well, you know, it, just um, just a quick plug, guys. You know, go uh, go off to uh, Standard Orbit <laughs> on Trek FM and listen to uh, <laughs> the three hundredth episode audio drama of the final frontier for uh, Shybok. Anyway, off off topic. It's a classic, there. <laughs> um, <laughs> as well as my. Uh, sort of sardonic David Warner impression. That's very good. Yeah. You get two for the price of one. Um, (laughs) Yes. Kalesh instructed his people, look for me there on that point of light. Uh, and the Boreth planet, the Boreth monastery is said to be built on a planet orbiting the star that he pointed at. So that's the reference. It's a reference to Boreth, which obviously uh, plays a role in the episode, but a very obscure. I mean, that's one for like Larry Nemechek, out there yeah. in the audience or so, someone with a pretty deep uh, sense yeah. of Trek lore I think uh, didn't pick up on that one I certainly didn't pick up on that one when no. I first watched it uh, but that's why we have Memory Alpha um, yeah. yeah gotta gotta love it by... God love it seriously <laughs> absolutely yeah to do the work for us yeah because uh, this would be so much harder if it were for <laughs> Memory Alpha next up an obble for Charon uh, again, kind of going back to ancient Greece, you know, we had the Lethe, which, you know, was one of the rivers in the underworld. Uh, Charon obviously is the um, boatman in the underworld who crosses the sticks, uh, the, you know, the a bit like the barge of the dead, the Klingons have this, there's someone who kind of uh, mans the boat and mythologically speaking, the idea was that you had to give him an obble, a coin to sort of pay your passage. And therefore a coin was placed in the mouth of someone uh, who had died. And obviously I guess the, you know, the reference here is that this is the episode where they try to convince us that Saru is about to die uh, and and leave the show. And actually, I mean, I know a lot of people felt quite cheated by this. I thought they did quite a good job. I started to think maybe Saru was about to leave the show um, as unlikely as that seemed, but um, obviously it turned out not to be a story about death at all. So it's in some ways, it's a slightly odd, it's a bit grandiose. It's a bit of a sort of show-offy title, but it's also oddly inaccurate in a sense. Yeah. That there is no death, ultimately. We don't get one. But um, but it's, it's a nice title, I suppose, mm. in its own right. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. It, it's, it is evocative. I, I did think that as well. I did think that. I, I did feel a bit cheated at first. I mean, I, in, in retrospect now, given how... Saru he has evolved into a really good character, actually, and, and the, the character development of Saru is one of the better things about Discovery. I think it's been it's been good, you know, that he, he stayed around. But yeah, it's it did lead me down the down the river sticks a little bit. That one, I have to say. <laughs> so <laughs> without an obble, yeah, without an obble, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, then we have a a great title, I think, Saints of Imperfection, yeah. which to me sounds like a, it should be a band, like quite a loud band from the 90s or something, <laughs> the Saints of Imperfection, yeah. but um, is actually a quotation from Guillermo del Toro. So not a oh. sort of classic reference point, but actually, you know, a 
a current working film director, and he had this line, um, monsters are the patron saints of imperfection, which is a great quotation and uh, and I think works very well as an episode title here as well. And I guess we're talking here about, uh, it's a long time, I have to confess, season two of Discovery, I haven't seen for quite a long time, but I think this is the one where we're going into the mycelial network to kind of look for Culber and Culber has sort of been turned into uh, a bit of a monster in some doesn't, ways himself and has kind of lost himself. Doesn't Tilly get eaten by some slug thing and then she ends up and that's how yes, she finds right. she him. She sort of cocooned, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. yeah, it's weird. I'm not I'm not a big it's fan a of the weird, episode. It's a weird one. No, <laughs> but the, the title's one. great. Nice yeah. title, nice title. Yeah. Then we have The Sound of Thunder, which actually could mm. also be a band almost, or a sort of uh, 80s I yeah. know, action. So, <laughs> sound of Thunder. It, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm thinking like Thundercats or something, but, <laughs> um, but it's uh, all like an... I don't know, it could be a Sylvester Stallone movie or something like that. Um, Tropic Thunder, I suppose maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't quite know what the reference point is here. There is a Ray Bradbury short story yeah. which has a very similar title. That's I don't know I if there's any, any link there. Um, I guess it conveys a sense of kind of an ominous, looming sort of threat. You know, you hear the thunder and you know that the storm is about to arrive kind of thing. Um, but slightly oblique one in some ways followed by light and shadows so we get thunder and then we get light not lightning but light and shadows i don't know i don't know about you i don't have a huge amount to say about that one it feels a little bit generic (laughs) somehow to me yeah and the darkness and the light in ds9 now we have light and shadows yeah um, and they've used light twice now you know, mm. uh, so it's a bit like, come on, you, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't just repeat yourself You're in right. any way. Point of light, light and shadow. Yeah. Mm. We, and then we're going to have shadows twice as well, you know, because we've got oh, through, yeah. the, through the valley of shadows. I don't know. I, I have to say, I, I think as much as a lot of people, season two is the season of discovery they loved. Both of us, I think no. that would not <laughs> really be the case. And I certainly think that the episode titles are, they're not bad, but they're not on the level of season one. Oh no. Maybe, or at least not consistently. Not at all. Um, we get, if memory serves, again, it, it's a little bit of a, well, it, it kind of works. It's, it's kind of a bit jokey, I suppose, in a way. I don't know whether there's a double meaning now on the idea of serves and service and Pike's sort of sense of duty, which seems to come across quite strongly. There's also maybe a sense that this is the episode that starts with that amazing montage that says previously on Star Trek and then jumps back all the way to the cage, (laughs) which I do think as much as I have reservations about season two of Discovery, I think that was quite an amazing move. Uh, I I do as well, actually. Quite a jaw-dropping thing to do. And so I suppose in a sense, the episode is calling back to Star Trek's own memory uh, in a way. So yeah. Could be. It kind of makes sense, I guess. I, but again, I, I, a little bit of a nothingy title. Yeah, although I, it's always, it always has made me think of Spock because it sounds like the kind of thing Spock would say mm-hmm. if memory serves. You know, it's that. I feel like it might be a little bit of that as well. Uh, you know, I think he does say that in one of the movies. I can't yeah. which one, but I'm pretty sure there is a Spock line that yeah. begins if memory serves. It's very Spocky. Uh, it is very Spocky. You're right. It does sound quite Spocky. Mm. Um, the next two episodes, <laughs> Project Daedalus and The Red Angel, both, I think in some ways are quite descriptive they're quite self-explanatory putting them side by side though there's an interesting parallel that comes out between the angel and daedalus now the angel obviously we find out the red angel is not actually a religious entity but is a person in a suit daedalus and icarus 
obviously uh, th- th- there's a parallel between those two stories you know there's someone who is is kind of attempting to use a mechanism to fly essentially and is destroyed in the process that feels like it can't be a coincidence in a way that you've got these two sort of iconic images of a human being sort of developing flight developing you, you know in the in the sort of personage of an angel or a bird or or, or whatever and then but also, of course, we have that sense of, of kind of downfall. And I guess, you know, Project Daedalus is the one uh, where we lose Arium, isn't it? And that sense of kind of the danger of that. So I don't know, it, it, that, uh, as much as they seem quite self-explanatory, I think putting them side by side does draw some kind of parallel between mm, them. Yeah, I think you might be on something there. Yeah. Perpetual infinity, I don't really know what this means what what is i mean perpetual they both mean quite similar things yeah perpetual means it goes on forever and infinity means it goes on for all i guess it's like all space and all time it made me wonder is there a difference between perpetual infinity and infinite perpetuity which is probably yeah a a, a less good title yeah Uh, yeah i don't know i feel like it's a bit it's a little bit into darkness for me. It's a little <laughs> bit of a kind of, you know, it sounds kind of cool, but really, but, yeah. What, what, are we, what are we on about here? Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And as I say, I haven't seen this episode for a while. Maybe, maybe it does make perfect sense, mm. and I'm just um, being a bit mean. But I, I guess one thing I would say is that I think season one of Discovery, I feel like even having not seen those episodes for a while, I could tell you what each of them is about from the title. And a lot of these episodes in season two, I would be hard pressed to remember which one is which. And obviously that's partly an element of serialization and the kind of new mm. track that we get. But I do think some of them, they're a little bit less descriptive than maybe they might be uh, in some ways, or a little bit less evocative or a little bit less specific. There's a sort of sense of a kind of generic Star Trekky title, but that doesn't totally draw your mind to the episode that, that you're talking about at the time and and that you could argue that uh, you know massively for next gen and voyager titles but yeah. i think there's something of that with these season two titles as well. well well it's funny because perpetual infinity i think could easily have been a voyager title you know i i, I think it has that sort of ring to it that's a little bit like okay well it's very sort of scientific and boxy it's a bit like okay fine all right yeah okay science fiction cool what does it really mean don't know you know, not not particularly, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. But through the through the Valley of Shadows is definitely a bit more leaning towards season season one, though, isn't it? The next one, I suppose. Yeah. That same yeah. kind of allu- illusion aspect. And I do I do remember this one because this is the one with all the mad time crystals. That's what it I'm, is. That, yeah. that's, <laughs> and Pike's, I'm going to turn into Davros Vision. You know, what one Pike, down the, exactly? Yeah. You know, which I still I still right. I, I, oh, I can't believe they're going to make a TV series about a character and as great as Anson Mountain is, Mount is and as good as Pike is, I can't believe they're going to make a TV series about a character who is destined to become a tragic, like, scarred robot man. <laughs> like, living, living in a dream world. It's, it's really bizarre. This whole, this whole episode stands out for me. I know we're talking about the titles and not so much the episodes, but I just thought this was the most non-Star Trek kind of thing I've seen in a long time in in this episode. I was like, what even is this now? Well, we can come in a future episode. We can, t- I mean, we have talked a bit about some of uh, the issues with Discovery Season 2. And I, I think there are big questions about Strange New Worlds, as much as I'm looking forward to it. And I know a lot of people are very excited about it. Me too, in a way. I think you're yeah. right. You know, this is a character who we know the end point. Now that has two problems. One is that um, 
we know he can't have a happy ending because we know he doesn't have a happy ending in a sense. Although arguably the menagerie kind of gives him a well, you know, sort of a happy ending. But we also know that ending. nothing bad can... That is very weird happy ending. We also know nothing uh, too bad can happen to him in the meantime because he has to get exactly. to that point in one piece. So there's yeah. an element of like he's sort of protected. Um, on the other hand... Better Call Saul is one of the best shows on TV. And True. that is a show True. that you could say has the same problem, that it's a prequel and it has to lead quite directly in some ways into an established continuity. And that hasn't yeah. stopped them doing great work on that show. So, you point. know, Anson Mount is great. Hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. But I agree, I think that's going to be a bit of an issue. Interestingly, that here, the reference point is the Bible. And we've had this kind of association with Pike and religious faith and specifically christianity and obviously in the cage there was this line where where pike imagines he's in hell and burning in the fires of hell and the Tolosian mm. says to him mm. uh, something like a story from childhood or something and we sort of i think imagine that you know human beings don't believe in all this anymore discovery kind of retcons it and says actually pike's father was a christian i think if i remember rightly or at least you at least we saw sort of passing down these stories so there's a kind of question you know, is actually is Pike actually going to be the first kind of major representative in Star Trek of an actual Earth religion, or you know, or what? But anyway, there's that kind of sense, and also this idea. I suppose though I pass through the valley of the shadows of death, um, there's mortality, there's death. He sees his not his death, but he sees a kind of near death sort of experience. He sees a, a death of sorts of the life that he lives. I will fear no evil, and I suppose there's that sense of Pike's optimism, Pike's kind of. He faces mortality and he gets on with his life somehow. Uh, maybe there's a sense of that, of his kind of positivity and, and kind of ability to keep on going somehow. Then after that one, we have a return to Shakespeare with Such Sweet Sorrow, parts one and two. I can't help thinking of them voiced by Christopher Plummer as General Chang. Yeah, same. <laughs> you know, in the Undiscovered yeah, Country. Yeah, yeah. Um, but here, quotation, obviously, from Romeo and Juliet. And really, this, I suppose, is the episode where discovery we started with a hello the vulcan hello here's a farewell this is a parting it's a parting for burnham and spock obviously on a personal level but it's also the point where discovery the show uh, i mean the ship parts company with the 23rd century which is you know the world that they've existed in but also the show in a sense parts company with existing star trek in a sense this is where they really do this is the you could say this is where the discovery starts because they're going you know they are going where no one's been before they're going into the far future they're going into this place where uh everything is going to be different um and there's also maybe a kind of sense of this sort of bittersweet quality of parting that you know we have the sweetness of victory you know they succeed in the end but there's also loss there's the saying goodbye and there's the saying goodbye to admiral cornwall as well um so that, that there's a kind of there's both sweetness and sorrow uh, in the story there, uh, as well as specifically this idea of saying goodbye. Of course, you know they they would like us to think that they're going where no one has gone before into the far future, and this is a whole other discussion. But do they really? Is it really a completely new, fantastic, mysterious alien? Well, I'm not convinced that season three really is, but. That's a whole different conversation, Duncan, really, isn't that it? That might have to work for another podcast, but we'll see. <laughs> Moving on then, we have the second round of short treks. Now, you, Tony, haven't seen these, so I suppose you might be the perfect person to guess what you imagine these episodes are about <laughs> based on the title. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I'll be interested to know what your feedback is not having seen them. Q&A uh, is the one where Spock and number one 
ask each other's questions in a turbo lift. I think that's fairly sort of self-explanatory. I suppose the title is, is there's an element of the kind of amusing everydayness about it, which is sort of what they're trying to capture in the episode. Um, the trouble with Edward, I think is an interesting one. It's a Tribbles episode. Normally, Tribbles episodes, they pun on the word Tribbles. So you've got, you know, more Troubles, more Tribbles. You've got Trials and Tribulations here. They want to do the pun, but they don't want to use the word Tribbles. So the pun is the trouble, the trouble with part gets, uh, uh, gets recycled again. Um, it's kind of jokey and silly and it's a jokey, silly episode. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, Kennedy, famous speech. Yeah. I guess this is one where, you know, we see this cadet being put to the test. It's a sort of psychological test. Again, I think there's this sort of idea of service. And and it's interesting that it's Pike again who's testing her. And Pike does seem to embody this idea of kind of Starfleet as a, you know, a real ideal and something, you know, sort of saluting the flag and kind of, you know, living up to the... I guess in contrast to Lorca, who's very pragmatic and everything, Pike definitely seems like the idealist. He seems like the sort of classic Star Trek captain. Mm. So in a way, maybe there's a kind of echo of that there. Ephraim and Dot is, to my mind, is the best of the second season of Short Treks. This is the animated one, with the mm. uh, which my son loves. It's the only Star Trek that he will watch. Uh, he adores oh. this uh, episode but won't watch as he calls it the old star trek i did try him on the animated series and he was not having it but this is a really lovely <laughs> it is a kind of quirky funny little buddy story which i guess is what the title sort of suggests about a very cute little tardigrade and a very cute little uh robot dot you know those uh slightly star warsy robots that they brought in for discovery um and i guess the word dot is kind of diminutive as well it sounds like a nickname um which is kind of quite cute. It's cutesy and it's a slightly cutesy episode. So it fits quite well. The girl who made the stars obviously is the story that's referenced in brother. Here we kind of get an animated version of it. I don't love this one. I have to say, I think it is, I believe based on a real myth or a real story. Um, I don't know. Someone else might need to, to fill us in a bit more on this. Children of Mars, I think is the most interesting title. Um, but in a way, the most disappointing. When that title was announced, and we knew that obviously Picard was going to deal to some extent with the aftermath of what happened on Romulus, though I think maybe we didn't know to what extent, someone pointed out that the children of Mars in mythology are actually Romulus and Remus. So there was an assumption that this was actually going to be a Romulan-heavy episode, and that that would be quite interesting and quite exciting. Then it turned out that Children of Mars is actually a very prosaic title because it's an episode about two children on Mars, uh, which seems, or actually not even on Mars, two children on, I mean, they're not children on on Mars, they're children on Earth, but their parents are on Mars. Um, So they're not even really children of Mars. It's, it's, I don't know. It sounds cool. It sounds like Children of Dune or something. It sounds kind of sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a novel, doesn't it? It sounds like a sci-fi novel. And again, I have to say, I, I have seen this one. This. I think I, have, you have I seen did this see one. this one. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Brandon Mutella, this is his favourite episode of Star Trek or something. I don't know. I what? found this one a bit schmaltzy. And what, like, of all of yeah, Star no, Trek? Really? <laughs> oh, Brandon's mad. He loved mad, it. He, he absolutely Bless adored him. it. I don't know. Whatever. You know, if, if it if it does it for you, then great. But yeah, fair play. Um, for me, it was a bit of a nothingy prequel to Picard. It was a bit of a tease. And as soon as we saw the first episode of Picard, I feel like it was rendered totally unnecessary. It was really just like a weird teaser, like a sort of short film teaser for me. I don't know about you, because once you get to Remembrance, uh, which is the next one on the list, um, I just feel like you didn't need Children of Mars. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really, mm. to me, it doesn't really add anything, but, Whatever. Yeah. Some people loved it and they loved the music. Uh, 
even if they should have used the David Bowie version of that song. <laughs> um, moving on to Picard with Remembrance. I think this is a great title. We've got this sense, you know, Picard remembering the supernova, remembering his past, remembering the dead. You know, it's like Remembrance Sunday. There's this sense of, of kind of loss and, and remembering that. Um, remembering the war and even, you know, we think of remembrance maybe in terms of the First and Second World Wars. Uh, Picard is mentioning Dunkirk at one point at the beginning of this episode, you know, so he's even remembering the Second World War, which no one else yeah. remembers, as he points out. He says, you know, you don't know anything of history. Um, there's also, of course, the idea we're remembering next generation. We can't watch that without being, uh, pushed into this kind of bittersweet nostalgia in a way, uh, of, you know, thinking of Picard as we knew him uh, many decades ago. So I, I think it's a great title for all those reasons. It's sort of, and it's quite sombre and serious and reflective, which befits the show that they're presenting us with, really. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. It is. It is a good title. It definitely fits for all those reasons you've said. I mean, it turned out to be more of an action-packed episode than I think maybe we thought it would be you know, when we first started watching the. I mean, you could say that about the whole show. I mean, Picard was not exactly the meditative Star Trek of old that they kind of suggested it would be. There was a lot of whiz bang, really. But the, this this is a nice and not it is a perfectly fitting. It's what it, I, it, I probably said this on on Make It So or on this podcast when we talked about it. I think it is one of the most fitting pilot episode titles of a of a season of a series. Yeah, actually, yeah, it very very much fits the ethos of, of Star Trek Picard. But yet one that's looking back rather than looking forward. I mean, this is well, not going out into Picard space. to this a is, T. <laughs> this is reflecting. This is looking back on the past. I mean, yeah. which is quite an interesting way to start a new show, I think, in a way. Uh, followed by Maps and Legends. Now, this is, I feel like, a plug for Michael Shabon's book, Maps and Legends. It's yeah. almost like, yeah. You know, yeah, this is a bit cheeky uh, here in a way. Um, but it's an interesting book of essays and and worth a look. And I guess it's the sense of maps and legend, you know, the legend as in the legend that you have on the map. Some of these Picard ones, I feel like we may have talked about before when we did our episode yeah. about season one of Picard. So we might sort of breeze through these uh, a little bit. End is the beginning. I don't have a lot to say about that. I mean, it's on... A literal level, the end of that episode is the beginning. It is kind of, I mean, there is this sense these three episodes are basically a pilot stuck, mm. you know, divided into three parts. And the end of that is kind of the beginning. This is sort of a new beginning. <laughs> Picard seemed to be at the end of his life. Now he's at the beginning of an adventure. Yeah, that's basically um, it, isn't it? Mm. You know, where one thing ends, something else begins. Um, absolute candor. I love this concept. Uh, I love the idea of absolute candor. I think it's great. And also that wonderful line about a promise being a prison and the idea of, you, you know, mm. how being candid, how being, telling the truth can be uh, problematic uh, in a way. And I think it's a great title for an episode. Yeah. It, it, it has I that agree. sort of slightly grand... There's something almost slightly pompous about it as well. It feels yeah. quite Picard-like in a way. Yeah. Absolute, you, you, know, you yeah. might hear Picard extolling yeah. the virtues of absolute candor on tng uh but here it, <laughs> it has this sort of alien ring to it somehow because it's this alien concept very mm. different from stardust city rag um oh, which God. i think we did talk about before you know what yeah. is what is the rag I no here? idea i think it's a piece well i think <laughs> i think it's a rag as in a piece of ragtime music and i think it may be that actually at the very beginning of that episode if you remember there's uh a, a woman who is playing the piano in Right. What's her name? Bajazel's bar. Uh, yeah. And that, that may actually be the Stardust City rag, is that is technically that piece of music. I think it also sort of conjures this idea of like a ragtag group of 
weirdos and the sort of I don't know, and a, a rag being quite a free, jazzy sort of uh, yeah. piece of music, and that that somehow fits the kind of slightly offbeat, off the wall, wacky tone of this episode. I have to, I hate oh, this episode. It's rubbish. Uh, yeah, I think it's mad. It's I don't think it knows what it's trying to do, but I suppose it is. It, you know, that is obviously what it's going for—is something that's kind of entertaining and weird and, and doesn't follow the rules. And I suppose that is kind of what it does. Um, the impossible box. I think we talked about this. Whether there was a set, is the impossible, is the real impossible box a woman? As this sort of sense of like uh, yeah. the unknowable, you, you know, um, Soji as this kind of unknown puzzle. And I think there is a sort of gendered element to that somehow. That you know, Narek has to kind of get inside her mind. He has to un- understand her, and he also has to seduce her. And there is potentially. I think we talked about this before, whether there's a bit of a double meaning uh, mm. there, as well as mm. obviously referring to his his kind of Rubik's Cube um, thing. Then we yeah. have Nepenthe, which I think, as well as being a great episode, I mean, obviously the planet's called Nepenthe, but this is one a bit like Lethe that I think, you know, when you look up the reference points, uh, it means a lot more because Nepenthe uh, is a balm for sorrow, in again, in kind of classical mythology. And obviously that's, exactly why Riker and Troy are there is that's what that, yeah. that planet is. That's where they've, well, it's, it's, they've actually, they, they haven't gone there after the sorrow because I think Thad was there with them, but the planet, the kind of retirement, the kind of, uh, environment there, it very much fits that idea of this is, this is somewhere that people are recovering from grief in a sense. Um, and that, and that the title carries that meaning. Yeah, definitely. I, I did, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was another, um, Another Greek allusion. It sounds very Greek, though, so I completely but understand that. But yeah, it's lovely. I mean, it's my favourite episode of Picard, easily. This one, mm. I think, mm. um, and one one of the better, you know, modern Trek era episodes uh, because it's because it's, it's a proper character episode, you know, and that's what a lot of this era is sorely missing, really. So mm. yeah, it's it's very it's a lovely title for for a really nice episode as well. Followed by Broken Pieces. This one can't help make me think of the credit sequence of Picard's where you see all the little pieces slotting into his face, the pieces that make up the man. Yeah. And I sort of wonder yeah. what the title mm. of the episode there before they designed that uh, credit sequence or was it the other way around? Because it seems so on the nose in a way when you, you know, especially when you watch it uh, and you're watching that mm. sequence, which obviously we've seen eight times or whatever by then. Uh, yeah. But I guess this idea of... Picard's piece is being put together, but also I think this is the one with Rios and the Rios holograms all representing different sort of aspects of, of him in a sense that Rios is a kind of broken man as well. And, and arguably everyone in Picard is kind of a broken person that, trying to put themselves back together one way or another. They, they should have gone, though, for one of like the books on Rios's shelf, like his ex- existential books, you know, things like you know, the concept of dread or the tragic sense of life or the, the <laughs> yeah. sickness unto death. They should have gone for one of them. That would have been fantastic. Something I really think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we get finally Et in Arcadia Ego, uh, part one and two, mm. which you and I definitely talked about here. You know, yeah. the reference to the painting, the idea that even in paradise, death still lurks, you know, which ironically is the opposite of what this story kind of proves. Um, and I made a maybe slightly reaching argument that there, there might even be a more specific reference to the play Arcadia by Tom Stoppard uh, that is being alluded to here that... Um, Certainly it's the kind of play that you imagine someone like Michael Chabon might be quite keen on. Um, but either way, the reference point there is, is to that painting. So again, an interesting an, an allusion 
specifically to a work of art, I think, rather than a work of literature, um, exactly. Although, although the phrase obviously exists in Virgil, I think, but the but I think the reference point is really more to the painting than anything else. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah definitely. Okay, so then following Picard, obviously we were meant to get season three of Discovery, but they were stuck in post-production, so we got Lower Decks uh, dropping earlier than planned. The Lower Decks titles, I think, are interesting. In some ways, I think they a lot of them, they feel almost like parodies of earlier Trek titles in the same way as the episodes feel like parodies of earlier Trek episodes. And I think they, you know, even in a season that only has, what, I think 10 episodes, they managed to kind of hit on a lot of the different kind of types of episode titles that we've looked at over the course of this series. Um, we start, obviously, with Second Contact, Um which is kind of a joke in itself. It sets up yeah. the concept of the show, but it also does it in quite a humorous way, you know, because we know about how important first contact is. Well, this is not that. This is uh, something less important in a sense. And in a way, it, it kind it's, of, it very much sells the, the theme of the show, I think. Yeah, again, it is a very good pilot episode title, definitely. It very much establishes what this show is, that it's going to be a mockery, a, a, a gentle mockery. And and again, the whole idea that th- these these are the these are the lesser crew people, you know, these are, this is the these are the lesser Starfleet officers. It's good. It's very. It's knowing. It's winky. Much like the show itself, it is a sh- it is a, absolutely a show for Star Trek fans, really more than anybody else. So yeah, yeah, it's it's very good. It's a good title. Then we have Envoys. Now this feels like it could be a Burman era title. Very sort of yeah. bland, descriptive. Standard uh, fits well with that kind of next gen font going up on the screen. Here we do get the titles <laughs> up on screen again, interestingly. So Yay. Lower Decks yeah. gets to not only play with the titles, but you know, be kind of assured that the audience is going to see them, which I think uh, mm. maybe makes a difference there. Yeah. Then we have Temporal Edict. Um again sounds quite sort of I don't know, has quite a next gen y feel to me yeah uh, maybe the word voyager. Egypt is a little yeah. bit more yeah it could be voyager definitely next gen voyager that kind of a title and then by the time we get to episode four this one i think <laughs> is really trolling this title moist vessel yeah. i don't know who, <laughs> whose idea this was because i mean so many people have an issue with this I, I don't really get it myself but so many people have an issue with the word moist and obviously this lower decks is the show that is kind of trying to push star trek into the realm of like adult comedy and sort of yeah. this slightly sort of south parky maybe that's going a bit far but you, you, you know uh rick and morty this this kind of um streaming netflix uh style of adult comedy which is quite sort of scabrous and quite yeah graphic and quite sort of uh bodily fluids and all this sort of thing and i think to go with moist vessel uh, which is just going <laughs> to horrify a lot of people. <laughs> it's just quite, a it is. Of, again, quite a ballsy move in a way. It is, it is, it is a bit of a yucky word though. Moist, is it? It just, it just bring, it does bring out lots of like connotation. This, this, this is the episode, right, where Mariner has to clean up all the holodeck waste, right? This, it's, this is that one, isn't it? I think. I think so. Is it? I can't. Yeah. To be honest, because my only problem with the lower decks episodes, I really enjoyed lower decks, but a lot of them yeah. they don't actually remind me probably because they're harking back to that kind of Berman era of titles in many instances. Uh, I actually can't necessarily match them with the episodes, but that that certainly would make I, sense. I think, I think it is. And I mean, that in itself is, is definitely the most adult joke. 
any mm-hmm. shows mm-hmm. Star Trek has ever done because, you know, there's lots of connotations there uh, as to what actually goes on in the holodeck. But yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> this, in many ways, this is, this is a very, this is, this kind of title is the, you would only have this in something like Lower Decks. You would never get a title like this in any other Star Trek show. No, for sure, for sure. So then we have, you know, from the kind of uh, slightly grotesque to a, a rather romantic title, Cupid's Errant Arrow. Now, that one's a bit of a mouthful, but also that one is one of these ones that feels like a quotation. It feels like it should be Shakespeare, but as far as I know, uh, it isn't. I wonder whether that in itself is almost kind of a bit of a joke. Uh, yeah. It's this sort of slightly pompous sounding, kind of classical sounding uh, episode title. But... Um, as far as I know, it's not actually a real quotation from anything other than, you know, when, when I Google it anyway, all I come up with is the Lower Decks episode. Yeah, it could be. It sounds very spoofy, doesn't it? It sounds like... I thought Time's Arrow as well. You know, maybe... Mm-hmm. Not, not, not that there's, there's a connection as such, but, you know, Mike McMahon would have absolutely had those kind of things in his head, wouldn't he, really, when he's writing this? It's the word errant, I think, that makes it sound very, like, a bit like it's a quotation or something. If you, if you just called it Cupid's Arrow, then it would sort of... yeah seem a bit more generic but calling it cupid's errant arrow it definitely sounds like yeah like it's quoting something anyway mm. ma- ma- maybe it is maybe I- maybe i missed something and you know the babel conference is there and obviously one of the great <laughs> things about these episodes is people have it's, you know the listeners have filled us in on so many things that we've missed uh definitely along the way so you know do continue the conversation there and let us know what, mm. what we've kind of missed out on. Followed by Terminal Provocations. This to me sounds like a sort of DS9 episode. You know, you <laughs> had extreme measures, you had these yeah. kind of, uh, And it sounds like a kind of a thriller, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? It sounds mm. more like rules of engagement or, or this sort of thing. Terminal Provocations. It sounds like it means business somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have started Harrison Ford in... 1998 exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like and this, I think is, this is the one with Badgie in it isn't it which it does oh is it is this the Badgie one <laughs> element I think this is the Badgie one I'm pretty sure this is the Badgie Badgie's, one Badgie yeah. yeah. oh I love Badgie absolutely brilliant <laughs> then we have one which is in fact uh, a Shakespeare reference much to do about Boimler obviously a reference to much to do about nothing um, I guess also in the line of those kind of Star Trek episodes that take a quote and then replace a word with uh, something Star Trek specific. So we had uh, a fistful of datas. We had looking for Parmac in all the wrong places, Uh, you you know, sort of adapting, paraphrasing uh, an expression or a quotation by kind of Star Trekking it. And here we get it with Boimler. Mm. This, this is, there's also a nice little bit of um, trivia on memory alpha about how this, this is uh, the 12th episode or film to feature the name of a character from Star Trek in the title. Ah, so very interesting. I'll, there you go. I'll run through the others quickly. Spock's brain mm-hmm. in TOS and then the search for Spock. Data law, elementary deer. There's loads of these. Elementary deer data, data's day, a fistful of datas in TNG. Um, for Deanna Troy, menage a, Tro- menage a Troy, which is obviously that great pun name. Dax, for Jadzia Dax in DS9. The House of Quark. Slightly uninspired, that yeah. one, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. What <laughs> can we call it? Uh, yeah. Dax. Um, and and finally, Dr. Bashir, I presume, for Dr. Bashir. So this- what about our man Bashir? Oh, oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. And our, our man Bashir, that, that is there as well. So there's, 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 uh, tw- there's 11 others, and then this is the 12th. That much to do about Boimler. So there's this quite- real Star Trek. Star Trek pub quiz territory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can use this one, guys. But yeah, so it's been quite a while since we've had a, a title with the name in, definitely. It has been. I wonder whether we'll get one in um, 
in Discovery as well. It's kind of it's kind of slightly hard to imagine, but it, you know, well, they could, if we do, it's going to be Burnham. Well, oh well, they, for the love of Mike, that's what they should have. I think that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> that that'd work. <laughs> um. So. So that's interesting. So that was Trek's 12th uh, named character in an episode title. Then we have Veritas, which is on your list of of Latin titles. And I think if you said there were 14 of them, I'm pretty sure that makes that the 12th Latin title doesn't it? I think so. Because there are two then there's two more of Discovery. So so there you go. They've they've back to back. They've, um, you know, Mm. hit a dozen on on both those kind of running running things. Obviously, Veritas meaning truth. Uh, yes. And I think, again, sort of tying into Star Trek, kind of quoting Latin or quoting, you, you know, sort of tying into the classical world in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this sort of maybe slightly pompous way. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed that episode. I, I, I mean, I, this is not a Lower Decks discussion, but I sort of felt Lower Decks got better and better as it went on. And, and that was the point where I was really totally, totally into it. Um, then we have Crisis Point. This is the sort of movie uh, <laughs> pastiche fantastic episode it's called yeah i thought it was good. called crisis point colon the rise of vendetta or something i, but I think i think, I think it's technically just called crisis point i think that's the name of of the in-universe film and oh, then see, right yeah no maybe you're right it's just called crisis point the episode yeah which also sounds like a kind of harrison ford action yeah. film yeah, you know, from definitely. that kind of era in a way doesn't it yeah, crisis yeah. Point. it's great but, it's a great uh, title yeah and then finally, no small parts. I love this title. Obviously, from the expression, no, pull, there are no small parts, only small actors, which is, you know, so there's kind of a joke there in a sense, in that that's what the show is about. But it also is really saying something about what the show is about, I think. And this is the episode that really, for, you know, I would say that the, the two standouts of the season are Crisis Point and No Small Parts. And I think Crisis Point proves that the comedy absolutely works. Uh, and that it, it works as a kind of parody, as a pastiche, and that that, it, it, you know, it is very entertaining. No Small Parts does something even more impressive, which is that it basically works as Star Trek, you know, and it kind of does the comedy, but it also gets pathos in there. It gets a proper story in there. It gets a kind of dramatic arc. It gets a kind of, it feels like a real Star Trek episode. It's kind of heartwarming, I suppose, this idea in a sense that, you know, these guys are important too. Uh, you know, there aren't, they might just be ensigns, but there are no unimportant people in this universe. There are, there's no one whose story is not worth telling. Um, and I suppose that's what it's kind of getting at there. And it's, it's a sort of statement of intent in a way, as much as second contact was a kind was kind of setting up the idea of the show in this kind of self-deprecating, jokey, slightly sarcastic way. This is setting up the concept of the show but with a bit more conviction, with a kind of, actually, there is something meaningful about this. There is something valuable about this. Yeah, and it feels like, I mean, I feel like we should have a proper discussion on this show about Lower Deck soon this year. Mm, mm. Um, Season one, at least, before season two comes out, you know. But it'll be interesting to see if season two does build on that. You know, as you've said, that's a really great point. And if it actually does really start to combine a little bit more actual sort of dramatic trek with the the wink and the knowing and the comedy in her, which will always be there obviously um, in the show. So yeah, maybe it'll just deepen. So maybe this is a really good example of how that, that'll begin, you know, from, from this point. 
So from small parts, we go to a very large time jump uh, to look at Discovery Season 3, the most recent track that we've been exposed to, really, and the most recent set of titles. Now, these were interesting because they did start dropping them uh, ahead of time. And some of them that we'll come on to talk about actually ended up changing. There were a few puzzling titles here. Mm. But uh, now we have the benefit of having seen the whole season as well as having seen the titles. um, And we can talk about them, starting, of course, with That Hope Is You part one yeah now this obviously was a big mystery wasn't it at the time because we knew that the next episode wasn't that hope is you part two and we were like what like (laughs) when when are we getting but this is this is a first for star trek in that they uh, as it turns out, bookend a season with the same title and the two parts, mm-hmm. um, which is very... I've not really seen that done on television at all, as far as I can remember. It's the first time it's sort of ever been done. Tony, didn't the X-Files do that trick recently? I suppose so, but it wasn't... I guess so, with the My Struggles. My Struggle 1, 2, 3 and 4. I spo- 1, 2, 3 and 4. Yeah. I suppose so, but it doesn't, doesn't quite feel the same because it wasn't actually part 1 or part 2. You know, right, so you probably you are probably technically c- correct, but this just feels slightly different. It feels like it would have been, you know, the first of in the old style of Trek titles. It was it would have been the second part episode of the season would have been part two. You know, and you would have had mm. its two part opening it would, episodes. Yeah, of course, so it's yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's a strange it's a strange decision in many ways to actually go there and do that, isn't it? It was a, yeah, it was a strange choice. Well, definitely an unusual choice not to have part one and part two back to back. And then I guess when we finally, when we got the titles for the end of the season and part two wasn't even the finale originally, Mm. it, then people were like, okay, what the hell is going on? Where is this part two? <laughs> you know, so people were saying, is it going to be a short trek? I was speculating it was going to be the premiere of the following season yeah. because they, they seem to have already been well into writing, I think, by that point. And I got the sense that seasons three and four were much kind of closer uh, together in terms of production and planning and so on than we've seen previously with Discovery. Um, but then obviously they uh, kind of pulled the rug under us and revealed that the finale was going to be That Hope Is You Part 2, which kind of makes me wonder, did the first episode of Season 3 originally have another title? I mean, we don't normally, obviously, sometimes, you know, if you go through Memory Alpha and look at some of these old 90s treks or whatever, sometimes you'll find there was a working title uh, that the writers were using and that got swapped out at some point. But I can't think of an example where titles have been released for episodes and then subsequently changed and they'd actually changed all three the last three episodes of this season i mean we'll talk about it when we get to them all ended up changing their names and i do think there's an interesting question there as to what you know a what motivates those decisions to to say actually this episode's not you know okay we may have shot it under this name but we're going to release it under that name but also um why did that happen so late in the day? I mean, so late in the process that they'd already released them all uh, ahead of time. And then someone came in and said, no, that's not the title we're going for. I mean, I have to say, I can sort of relate to it because I had an experience um, with the most recent book that I wrote that the hardback came out under one title. And then for the paperback, they decided to go with a totally different title, which I have to say, I think is quite, I mean, I didn't really mind, uh, but 
a lot of readers were very confused. Uh, some people ended up buying it twice, which, you know, is <laughs> not, not so bad for me, but probably not great for them. I mean, I do, I do think it's kind of confusing when you, when you start messing with titles and, and changing them. And, and you do get that with books sometimes when they cross internationally. Um, like the first Harry Potter book had a different title. The first, um, his Dark Materials book, I think they changed the title for the Americans. You, you need, we're kind of used to that sort of thing, but changing it sort of fairly publicly insofar as you've already released the name of the title and then you're going to say actually yeah we're not calling it that anymore we're going to call it something else it's, yeah it's unusual at least yeah very i i um i, I for my uh upcoming star trek book star trek star trek history and us i'm actually quite surprised that that was the title i suggested and they've added a bit of a suffix on but i'm actually quite right. surprised that they've gone with that title because that in my last book it was completely different you know completely changed yeah so it's, it's quite it's quite good in that sense and your book funnily enough i remember i remember having a similar uh, experience that the one you've described because i saw i saw it in waterstones i was looking through the looking through the books and it was quite prominently placed you know in waterstones in the history section yeah, well that's and, no, always good to hear it was it really was and i was like oh wow that's duncan's book and then i was like hang on that's when the germans came what's is that is that a new one and then then it took it did take me a minute and then i realized oh, actually no it's 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 hitler's british isles isn't it that was that was the first that was the yeah. first title, wasn't it? which which i think is a i think was a better title i have to say because i read it in uh in um hardcover in hardback, in hardback, yes. as yeah, yeah. as Hitler's British Isles, and I thought I thought it was it was a really good title. So it is strange, and I think I think for Discovery, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like for Discovery and Picard, maybe not Lower Deck so much, but with Discovery and and, and Picard, I if, I feel like if there was ever a, a Trek era where you could almost not name the episodes and just have them be episode one, two, three, four, five, I feel like it would be these kind of seasons because they're far more in for them in the main connected i mean you know you know what i mean like especially picard being like a 10 part series and i know star trek would never do that and i'm glad because i think episode titles are really important and crucial but it feels like some of these episodes don't always necessarily stand out in the way that older star trek episodes do in my opinion so maybe right. the, maybe the titles aren't as important to the writers when they when they first do it you know for that reason well that's an interesting question i wonder also whether it makes a difference Obviously, back in the day, you know, you're doing 24-ish episodes. You're kind of working all year round, effectively. The writers are churning stuff out and it's going into production straight away. Whereas these days, I think, you, you know, you could have a situation where the whole season is written all in one go with a mm. short season and, and the kind of exigencies of production being what they are, especially at the moment where everything's quite up in the air. I wonder whether that makes a difference as well, whether you're, and, and if you're plotting out an arc from the beginning, you know, at what point to the, I mean, another interesting question would be at what point do the names get attached to these stories? Because um, mm. they have to have a kind of placeholder Maybe they don't. Maybe it's just like, okay, you're going to write episode three, you're going to write episode four and so on. But I suspect they have like a, a kind of shorthand for, right, this is the, uh, you know, if we're talking about um, Discovery, this is the one on uh, Book's Planet. Uh, this is the one uh, which we'll definitely come and talk about uh, with the Vulcans. This is, do you know what I mean? Like mm, mm. They're, they're kind of quite, I mean, actually season three of Discovery in some ways uh is more episodic in that I think certainly the early part of that season, it sort of felt like they were going to a different planet each week. And I quite liked that aspect of it. So they felt like they were quite discrete stories in some ways. Um, anyway, let's, let's kind of move on and talk a little bit about these, uh, titles. So that hope is you 
we mentioned obviously uh the premier again we've got a, a personal pronoun you know we talked about into the forest i go now we've got that hope is you and again i think it does it does sort of draw attention to the idea that this is burnham's story and obviously this you know the hope is you it, it is burnham in this instance because we we hear the quotation mm. from um what's his name the 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 guy who yeah. fell in love with, yeah. uh, with his federation flag <laughs> and everything but it, again it's like it's it's making it quite personal it's pinning it all on her it's it's not even the discovery is going to save the day it's burnham is going to save the day in some slightly yeah. not quite defined at this point way um mm. so i suppose that makes sense that we've got another one of these personal pronouns coming in there in a way though i feel like this is slightly different in that when you look at something like into the forest i go in a way that feels less about a particular person, specifically Burnham, and more about the pronoun being used in a broader context, uh, as it, in almost a characterization of the self, not, uh, not Burnham specifically, but the self on that journey, that inward journey, as we've talked about. Whereas I feel like that hope is you is basically just, you know, the beginning of, you know, um, Mary, uh, Burnham's Mary Sue arc throughout this entire season you know I mean I've got big issues with the character of Burnham in season three particularly you know which I won't necessarily bore people with in this in this podcast but I, I feel like that's that's a very much on the nose kind of that hope is you I, d- I don't really see any broader idea there behind this title except to sort of suggest that you know Burnham is the you know the MVP of this show and it's it's all going to be pinned on her and I think that's quite explicit really I mean this is a massive can of worms to be opening at this late stage in the conversation <laughs> I think and maybe this is one we should save really for another episode yeah. I I think I don't feel as strongly as you do I think this is it's quite a controversial issue this question of whether Burnham is a problem uh, for discovery I mean I I like Burnham as a character I like Sonequa Martin Green I don't have anything against either of them i think i I do think it was quite risky what they did with these first two episodes of separating her from the rest of the crew because they kind of well they they, i suppose they proved two things they won one they proved that she can carry the show on her own which is is great you know fair enough but they also proved that the show can work without her because they took her out of an entire episode and it as far as i'm concerned worked fine but i think there is this big question that's been with discovery from the beginning a lot of people who hate discovery and there are a lot of uh you know discovery like serious more so even than people like you and i who have the odd qualm about discovery but you know the people who really despise it a lot of it does center on this idea of burnham as a mary sue character and i think it becomes very divisive because then you get people on the other side defending that character and saying uh that those attitudes are coming from racism sexism uh you know whatever And, and i think there's an element of truth in that in some of those cases and some of those arguments. But personally, I sort of think it's, I do think there's something slightly problematic about it. And I don't think it's quite the same. People always say, oh, you know, look at the other uh, shows that, you know, where the lead was the captain or whatever. We didn't have this problem. I sort of feel like I'm not sure that's quite true because I think the fact is you could do a show from the perspective of the first officer or of this other character, you know, whatever she is, she she starts off as first officer and sort of ends up back there. And then obviously now she's the captain. But I think it's more, it's more the fact that she seems coincidentally to be so central to every one of these massive kind of galaxy spanning uh, sort of events somehow 
that it feel and the fact that it happens over and over again it starts to feel a little bit convenient maybe i don't know i mean obviously we had say cisco who turned out to be basically a god and people don't really complain about that but i feel like that sort of that that gave him a reason to be at the center of that whole storyline if you know what i mean because that had been set up in the first episode and that was sort of i don't know i maybe we're not really going to get to the bottom of this I, I, what i sort of feel is that there's 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 kind of um a lack of good faith sometimes on both sides of this argument potentially and that actually you know i don't think it's a problem that burnham is the main character i think that's great and i think she's a good character and i i like watching her but i do think there's something when they kind of plot out these arcs i suppose they they inevitably have to find a way to make her the central character in the story where her position on the ship or whatever wouldn't necessarily lend itself to that now obviously going in season four they made her the captain and so on it's going to be a lot easier i think they're not going to have to it's not going to be such a stretch somehow you know, we kind of accepted it was Picard that was turned into Locutus. I mean, if it was another member of the crew, I don't know. I don't know whether that would have... It would have played out differently. Data, they probably could have done it. If it had mm. been, you know, Georgie that had been Locutus and that had been a big ongoing thing, I feel like that would have been... I don't know. It, it would have been different anyway. It would have been different. But so so I sort of... I don't feel quite as strongly as you about this, but I I do have a slight reservation about it. Well, honestly, I, th- I think there's, I think there's a whole other discussion we should have on this. I think, I think this would make a good episode of Primitive Culture because I think there is a real conflation that people who are critical of, of Burnham's character arc this season are being, are making with the, with black representation in Discovery. And I think they're, I, d- I don't think that's a fair criticism at all. And I've had, I've had that leveled at me actually on social media. You know, the suggestion that I don't like Burnham because she's a black lead. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth at all. I don't like the character of, Burn, of Burnham. Nothing against Sonequa Martin-Green because she's very spirited and I think she's a decent actress. I don't like the character of Burnham in the in this show, particularly in, in these last couple of seasons, because it... And, and, the, and th- this is connected to this discussion today because that hope is you, for me, very much sort of spells this out, that the writers are so in love with Burnham they cannot see... Well, you know, to use another pun, the forest I go for the trees. You know, they they just they just can't. I think they feel like like she, there's this weird conflation between Sonequa, Burnham, this idea of a of a of a heroine of, of of even a black heroine in space. I think I think there's a lot to it. I think it's a fascinating idea and topic actually. And I think they're a little bit obsessed with what Burnham represents in a broader context in many ways, and also the you know. The current space that Discovery is operating in, I think, I think, I think there's a lot to it. I think it's a really interesting idea. I, I mean, I was convinced that the burn was going to be about Burnham because of burn. Frankly, I, I really was. I thought, is this is, is this is going to be the burn, hum, isn't it? Of sort, you know. And I'm very glad that it wasn't in the end. But you know what I mean. I just think mm. that hope is you makes personalizes this in a way that some of those other pronoun episodes were a broader mythical idea, and that's one of the reasons I like season one because I think it's doing that in the titles as well as the episodes, and I don't think that's the case here. I just think they love Burnham and they want her to save the universe, really, in many ways. And I can't really get behind that in a Star Trek show because that was never what... what That's never mm. been what Star Trek is. And I think there's all the other examples that could be cited are very different. So anyway, it's, it's a much, much bigger, broader discussion that I'd love to have, actually, on this podcast. Maybe we will one day. There's something to look forward to, uh, or, <laughs> or skip, <laughs> depending on your, your inclination, yeah, 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 yeah. anyway. Um, 
Well, yeah. Okay. So from Burnham being the, the key to life, the universe and everything to the next episode, <laughs> she's not even in, which as yeah. I say, I think was quite a bold choice. Far from home. I don't have a huge amount to say about this. Uh, I think it's the name of a Spider-Man film as well, isn't it? Recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, obviously, they are far from home, it, both, you know, temporally and spiritually. And I don't know whether they are spatially or not. I, I don't think I quite got my head around that and where exactly they landed and, and what was going on with the kind of geography of all this. But um, I guess it sort of sell it, it sells the sort of lost, mm. not lost in space, but lost in time uh, thing, I suppose, doesn't it? It could, it could be a Voyager episode far from home. Mm, yeah, I, I feel like it's fine. I, mean, I, I really like that episode, actually. I think it's one of the better ones of the season. But I, I think it's a perfectly f- simple, you know, not very sort of layered title. I, th- I think a lot of these early episodes of the season, I think a lot of the episodes of the season, again, are fairly standard to the point titles. I think the first few episodes actually do. I think mm. they pretty much hit you on the head with, okay, well, that's what this is. So there's not, yeah, there's not a vast amount to say about it, really. They're certainly less flamboyant than the season one episode titles we were talking yeah. about earlier, aren't they? I mean, you know, Far From Home, People of Earth. People of Earth, I suppose there's sort of, I quite like, I, I mean, I quite liked all these episodes, actually. I quite enjoyed them all. Um, People of Earth, I guess there's a sort of question, are they of Earth? Who is, do you know what I mean? Are our people of Earth anymore? Do you know what I mean? Because Earth has kind of changed. Mm. Earth's done a sort of Brexit, basically, and, you, you know, <laughs> uh, is, is is not what it once was. So I, I guess there's a little bit of sort of irony there in a way. Interesting, we had Children of Mars uh, in the short treks. Now we've got People of Earth. Yeah. Could you have feds it? Instead of Brett, could you have feds, feds it? it. Yeah, they've left definitely. Feds it. <laughs> they've done, they've well, no, done... the Earth, isn't it? It's Earth that's exited, so it's uh, Earth-sit. Earth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Doesn't, re- doesn't roll yeah, off the tongue. I mean, much as I hate Brexit, it, it does roll quite, off the tongue. I'll yeah. give them that. But yeah. It does, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you can thank a tabloid journalist for that, though. Oh, yeah. Not the architects of Brexit. but. <laughs> And then, and then, and then we get forget me not, which I think is 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 very simple, nice and simple and kind of mm. touching. Again, interesting episode, uh, quite a moving episode in many ways, and quite a sort of, again, I suppose going for that sort of quite simple, quite um, I don't know, sort of quiet title somehow, if you know what I mean. It's, mm. it's not the kind of action adventure, and that um, is clear from the episode title. I quite like that one. Yeah, yeah, I, the episode was okay. I, I, I quite, I quite like the title. Um, it, it has a, it has a bit more of a um, a romanticism fairy tale aspect, I suppose, doesn't it? So it's sort of thing mm. I could have imagined a next gen episode being called. Actually, forget me not. Um, well, you, know, you could uh, like have it in a double bill with Remember Me, couldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a nice one. Yeah, it's a nice title. Then we get Die Trying. Now, this is I think that's a great title. Actually, yeah. I feel like that could have been could almost be a DS Nine episode, a Klingon episode. Trying. A Klingon, a Klingon episode, yeah. for sure. I mean, this actually, though, I think is the episode with the seed bank, isn't it? This is when yeah. Arn uh, mysteriously jumps ship about <laughs> two weeks after having been made a series regular, which I've, that I did find quite bad. Really, really what's odd. going on then. Yeah. I assume she's coming back at some point, maybe. I don't mm. know. Uh, but yeah, nice, uh, nice title. I suppose it conveys that sort of sense of desperation and the sense that, it, I mean, they are in quite a desperate situation the discovery crew uh i think and quite you know very dislocated certainly at this early stage of the season and feeling kind of quite adrift so i suppose it sort of it you know it fits with that a little bit um scavengers seems fairly self-explanatory i guess 
And then I think we get to this was the absolute like <laughs> WTF moment of you know when they started <laughs> dropping these episode titles. Yeah, I mean this this can only this is almost. Uh, we talked about Moist Vessel being a kind of trolling title. This is whatever the opposite of trolling is. Like, you know, something that you've released to kind of just make the fandom explode. Yeah. Uh, calling this episode Unification 3 <laughs> was a very ballsy uh, and I think quite brilliant move in yeah. a way. Because, um, and there were debates going on about it. You, you know, is this going to just be a tease? Is it kind of a bait and switch? Is it actually, you know, are we really going to get a resolution to this Romulan Vulcan uh question or is it just is it a bit of a trick somehow are they just Mm. are they just playing with us are they toying with us is it a joke but in fact it is and so it's a weird example of an episode title that i suppose a little bit like in ds9 you had who mourns for morn didn't you which is kind of uh riffing on an original series episode title uh or, or even um trials and tribulations i guess you could say they, they mm. did that again this is one where it's playing on the fact that you remember those next gen episodes and of course when we get to it we even get to see uh footage i think taken from those next gen episodes mm. don't we in the episode itself yeah i mean very interesting uh choice there i think probably the the like i say probably the most ballsy episode title that star trek's come up with for a, a very yeah. long time yeah and and deliberately like you say deliberately for Star Trek fans, particularly, you know, I mean, I, I, this was my favourite episode of the season, I think, actually, or one of in my top three. I, I actually thought this was this was a really, really good episode of Star Trek, precisely because it was about a lot of the Star Trek kind of ideas. It was, it was, it was, there was a big debate to it. It was about characters talking and discussing and, and everything like that, and, and it was. It was just really put well put together, and and aside from all of the you know things like seeing Leonard Nimoy and that kind of thing, which does give you goosebumps and all that, and and the resolution of the Spock, uh, Burnham learning about who Spock becomes and all these kind of things, which are really good, that tie into continuity. It, it it was it was good that they did actually give the give the people what they wanted when they saw that title. You know, I think had 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 they tricked us with it, everyone would have gone, oh, what you you know, but they actually did, and it was a good. It was a good resolution. It was a good story. So yeah, they really, really got that one right. Absolutely, and yeah, it, it really it's so they got away with it. And you know, they kind of almost might not have done in another context. But I think, and again, it's one of those examples of, of an unusual thing to do. You know, doing you know part three of a story that began nearly thirty years ago on a on a on a on a show three series back or whatever four series back. It is ballsy. You're absolutely right. And and it works. Definitely. I'm kind of curious with that one as well, at what point they came up with the title. I mean, it, it they, they must have, you know, been working out this episode. Who knows? Maybe it even been written by this point. And at some point, someone must have just had this genius idea and said... And you could kind of almost imagine the excitement in the room <laughs> when someone makes this suggestion, you know what, we could call this one. It probably previously had some, you know, boring Latin title or yeah, something. Uh, and yeah. then and someone swapped this one in instead. And it, you know, it is it is almost a I mean, it is a kind of tease. It is a sort of in-joke, but it's an in-joke that absolutely is sort of paid off mm. by the episode somehow. After that we have the sanctuary, uh not obviously the DS9 episode Sanctuary, though Discovery mm. does sort of like to borrow DS9 titles, I think, and just ever so slightly repurpose them. The Sanctuary um, the sanctuary one, sounds think... like it could be from Enterprise as well, actually. It sounds mm. a very Enterprise, does, yeah. early Enterprise season title, yeah. 
but fairly fairly nondescript, I suppose, mm. that one. Fairly, you're right, sort of fairly Berman era. Then we have Terra Firma. Now, this, I think, was another inspired episode title. And I can't believe that, well, I certainly didn't. I don't think anyone uh, guessed what this two-part episode no. was going to be about that I know of. And I can't believe now that we didn't get it. Do you know what I mean? That we didn't yeah. see it because in some ways it yeah. seems so obvious. Yeah. You know, it's got the word terror in there. We've even had a, a you know, group called Terra Prime in Enterprise, uh, you know, who have similar kind of uh, sort of fascistic leanings, I mm. suppose, to the to the mirror universe. But I just kind of assumed it's called Terra Firma because they're going to go back to Earth and it's yeah. going to be about, you know... Um, Same settling down on earth or kind of uh you know connecting to their i, I don't know whatever they're mm. meeting up with their descendants kind of, kind of stopping for a moment and kind of pausing it's going to be one of those kind of things um or, or something's going to go on on earth the the fact that you know terra firma refers to the terran empire uh i just think was astonishing and this was one of those um kind of twists that they got away with that I think whatever you think of those two episodes, and I know some people love them, some people not so keen on them, that was quite an amazing twist. And they've done it twice now, Discovery. I mean, when they took us to the Mirror Universe in the first season, it was a bit of a kind of uh, jolt. Although th- the way things had played out, people had been sort of starting to predict it. Doing it again now, I think everyone was kind of blindsided by it, as far as I can see. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And definitely. I think coming up with a title... That obviously they had to have a title that didn't totally tip their hand. So it's, there's no mirror puns here. It's not, you know, through the looking glass again or whatever. And yet something that you look back on and you think, why did we not get that? It's so obvious. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was a brilliant move here. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm fairly lukewarm on pretty much all of the terror, all of the actual mirror universe stuff. I think this, this was like my point where I, I thought, oh, th- that that is enough now. That's it. I am I am happily <laughs> done with all of this. But you know, all of the other stuff around it with you know the Guardian of Forever and all that wonderful, great stuff. And and like, it, but yeah, you're right. I, I had exactly the same thought about Terra Firma in in that I thought it was going to be about Earth. I thought it might have been this, the next part in the Earth story after People of Earth. I thought it might be part mm. of an arc they were doing and that kind of thing because obviously the title in Latin is Solid Earth. So, mm. yeah, a very, very good little bit of wrong foot in there, actually. So very smart. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I appreciate what they did there. Now, after that, we have the first of these episodes that changed the title. Uh, I, I guess, for the, you know, the Discovery kind of this season ends with effectively a three-parter, doesn't it? The three-part mm. storyline, which deals with the origin of the burn. Now, the first of these episodes is called Sukal, which is the name of the uh, alien guy, the other mm. Kelpian. Previously, it was called The Citadel. Now, I loved the title, The Citadel, when mm. they released that. I thought, wow, that sounds cool. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was quite keen for that. See, Carl, I guess, until you've seen it, it doesn't mean much. I mean, we have other episodes in Star Trek that are named after the guest star, I suppose. You know, we've got Ensign Rowe. Uh, we've got... I don't know. Now I'm blanking. I was going to say Darmok, but obviously well, that's I, not the name of the guest well, star. Yeah, but you, you, I, I you know, there, are, there are other episodes yeah. that have done that. Yeah, yeah. There, there have been a name. I don't know. I wonder why they changed this one because I quite like the Citadel, but um, for whatever reason, they decided Sakal was better. Maybe they thought that it wasn't enough of like a Citadel. Maybe you know. Maybe, maybe they just looked at it and thought maybe there isn't enough here to sort of for that title to make sense. 
I don't know. I don't know. And and but but like you say, that there is it is a little bit more descriptive and elegant. Whereas like you say, Sukal could mean anything. Sukal could be a ship. It could be a planet. It could be a nebula. You know. Mm. You, you know. It, it doesn't have to be a person. So. Yeah, but luckily it turned out it was a really, really good episode. So, you know, luckily it all turned out okay <laughs> in the end. And then we have, I think, maybe the most interesting change with the next episode, There is a Tide. Now, this originally was called The Good of the People. Yes, so this is a quotation from Cicero, The Good of the People is the Greatest Law. Now, I guess this is kind of referring to the sort of negotiations going on for this peace treaty, maybe, that, that is kind of going on in this episode. I, I, I assume that's sort of what we're mm. alluding to here. Now, interestingly, so you've got a Roman title, effectively, though not thankfully delivered in Latin this time. And then they switch to a Shakespearean title, There is a Tide. But the quotation, There is a Tide, comes from the play Julius Caesar. So although it's a Shakespearean yep. title, it's again, it's a Roman uh, it's a sort of Roman sentiment. There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. So this sort of idea of seizing seizing the moment, seizing the opportunity, which I suppose I, I can sort of understand the the switch. It, it suggests a bit more action somehow. I mean, the good of the people does sound a bit like a kind of morality play or something, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like, isn't yeah. there a Nixon play called something like that? It's, it sounds like it's going to be quite um, people in rooms arguing over things somehow. Whereas there is a tide, especially with that dot, 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 sounds a little bit more like something is about to happen. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of imminent uh, kind of action of some kind. So I can kind of understand that switch. Um, But just I find it interesting that they went from one kind of Roman saying to another effectively. Well, it's, it's, I think what's interesting about it is that, like, had the episode perhaps been a lot more based around... What I think is the most, perhaps the most interesting scene, which is the uh, stuff between Admiral, oh, what's mm. his name, the Admiral, um, and Dadmiral, uh, Ad- Ad- yeah, yeah, Hunky Dadmiral, yeah, Hunky Dadmiral, the Vance, Admiral Vance, Vance, and that's the one, um, yeah. and uh, and Osira which was very much all about, you know, politics and you know, how su- suddenly Osira happens to be a senator in some sort of, you know actual government which was bonkers because like she's basically been like a catsuit gangster all season you know i mean it didn't make any sense but it was a very interesting conversation and i I wonder if the episode had been more geared onto that axis the good of the people would have made more sense as a title if it had been a little bit more meditative as an episode but it's basically diehard isn't it this episode in many ways it's 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 john burnham mclean on, on Discovery, saving the ship. So there is a tide, definitely, like you say, it implies more action, it's more suspense, it's more drama. So it's a good, really good title, but it, it's, you know, and, it, and it's ominous, you know, it, it suggests something coming, you know, it suggests something powerful happening. So I like it. Is it particularly, like, resonant for what happens? I don't know. Like, I, I don't really know if it makes... I mean, you know, we talked we talked about how the Discovery Season 1 titles made real thematic resonant sense. I don't really know if this does, as much as maybe they think it does or they want it to, like, you know? I think that's a fair point, yes. It's a great... It's a good title in the abstract. I think in a year's time, we might be struggling to remember what happened in that episode. And obviously, mm. that's not a problem that's unique to Discovery. There are... Oh yeah. You know, you could have a you could easily have a pub quiz of Star Trek episode titles and, you know, pick <laughs> some slightly less well known ones and ask people what happened in them and a, a lot yeah. of us probably would, would struggle. Yeah. Um I think that's an interesting point. It's a, yeah, it's kind of an evocative quotation, but does it really 
latch onto the episode enough mm. to to work in that way as a title. Um, then obviously we get to the finale, That Hope Is You Part 2. You know, we talked about what on earth was going on there. Uh, w- were we ever going to get Part 2? Well, now we did. And it was the episode that was previously called Outside. Now, Outside presumably was keeping the focus on Sukal and the idea, I assume, the outside was referring to him leaving his sort of uh, created world and kind of experiencing the world outside in some ways. Obviously, that hope is you brings the focus again back onto Burnham, which, you know, maybe is appropriate for the show. Uh, Outside does feel a very low-key title to end yeah. the season on somehow i think yeah. i i actually think in this instance i can see why they did it i think maybe it was a good decision but maybe it was also you know maybe they were holding out part two till the next season or who knows till three seasons down the line or something like that uh and the fans just got so confused and were worrying <laughs> about it so much that they decided to change it i don't know i'm it, curious it, but um it, it does whatever reason wonder. someone decided that would be a good or, or maybe actually to be honest maybe episode one was called that hope is you Maybe episode one was called That Hope Is You. All these other episodes had their own names, including Outside. Mm. And then at some point, someone said, hey, why don't we make that first episode a part one? And we'll we'll call this part two. And it will feel like we've wrapped the season up somehow because we've we've bookended it like that. On the other hand, if that's the case, then why did why did they release the wrong old title? Was that just someone screwed up in the PR department or what? You know? Well, it could have been a misdirect, couldn't it? It could have been... That they wanted. I mean, not. It's weird though because if they'd have said that it was called "That Hope Is You" Part Two, I don't think it necessarily would have been. I mean, you know, if you, I mean, I don't know if you watched it at the time. I can't remember, but if if you remember Game of Thrones and how they would release those titles, you quite often would get a title. Everyone was excited for the titles because it, they would often refer potentially to something that would make you go, "Oh, we're going to get this happen." You know, whether it's something like right. you know. Uh, the Battle of the Bastards, for, say, for instance. Now, everyone, everyone who knows that show in the books, they know what the Battle of the Bastards would mean, you know. And it's this, and it, you know. So when you get those titles, the, the, it makes sense, and you're, there's an anticipation. I don't really know if that Hope Is You Part Two is an anticipatory title, except it, it, for the, it only the only thing it being is, oh, it links back to the premiere, but. The premiere and the finale are so far away in many ways from each other. In many ways, you know, it's not like part one. It's not. It's not like they start. Well, okay, here's an example, right? It's not like. Have you seen Hannibal, the TV show? No, I haven't. Right. No. Okay. Well, well, I won't spoil anything. But at the okay. very beginning of Hannibal, there, there, it, it's sort of there, there's a, a flash forward to what happens at the end of season two, and the very beginning of season two begins with the with what goes on at the end, and it is the most exciting, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And then it makes sense by the end. Now, if if they'd have done something like that, where part one was almost a massive cliffhanger, and then you go into the next episode of season three. And it sort of goes back maybe in time or whatever. And then you're seeing the lip build up. I would understand why that hope part two, that hope is you part two would be like, oh, we're going to get the next bit of this. But it, it kind of, it doesn't do that. So I don't really know why you'd keep it secret. What I do like, what I do like about it is what you said though, the bookend, you know, taking aside all the Burnham stuff, I, I like, I like the idea that it kind of contains the season in, a, in, in, in its own little box. Because I, what I'd hope is that season four, having set everything up by the end and really gives them carte blanche to go off and do something completely different now to sort of, you know, really go off and explore this future galaxy and do some really new storylines. And I really hope it does. So you could almost say that this, this sort of bracket season three 
in its own way in quite a nice way, actually. So on that basis, I like it. And it's definitely more evocative than outside, which is just, a, it could be anything, couldn't it? It sets us up. And it's true, you know, maybe in part one, the hope is Burnham for kind of, I don't know, bringing the Federation, the the, the ideals of the Federation back yeah. somehow. It, by the end, it's also the hope of the Discovery crew. She's their captain. I don't know. Do you know what yeah. I mean? There's a yeah, yeah, yeah. There is yeah. A, there, I mean, there is a sense that, that that finale, that season three finale, is almost getting us to the point where, you know, there was all this debate about, you know, oh, she's the main character, but she's not the captain, blah, blah, blah. And now, of course, she is the captain. So it's like, this is the point where most Star Trek series start from, really. You know, and all this stuff, all this past is prologue. And, you know, maybe season four yeah. is going to be where we... You know, <laughs> maybe season four is going to be where the story, as it kind of goes on, starts. Like the the, the toys are all in the right places in the box. Mm. Who knows? Although maybe. I think currently Saru is off the ship, and you know who knows what's going to go on there. So yeah, there's plenty yeah, yeah. more to deal with. But um, but yeah, obviously uh, we will find out in due course. I mean, they're filming at the moment. Um, eventually we'll get to see those episodes and before we get to see those episodes we'll get to see the titles for those episodes and we can speculate wildly about what they might or might not be referring to and then uh, see whether we got it right or not duncan i can't wait for that hope is you part three quite frankly um, absolutely part four five six you know <laughs> i mean they got they got form for my struggles didn't they yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. maybe they'll all and just I'm be that hope sure. is you from now on. I'm pretty sure if Gillian Anson had agreed, there'd be at least, you know, another couple yeah. of my struggles out my, there. My, but, you know, my struggle five and six. Sadly. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, anyway, uh, as and when these these episodes are released and these titles are released, maybe we will come back to this uh, ongoing series yeah. and, and pick up where we leave off here. But for now, that is it. That is Star Trek. That is... Yeah. 801 episodes of Star Trek, I think. Obviously, we haven't talked about all of them. We've skipped over quite a few. But uh, those were the highlights. Um, as ever, we would love to hear any thoughts that any listeners have uh, mm. in the Babel conference on Facebook about anything we uh, failed to pick up on, any thoughts more generally about this issue of naming and, and titles and what it's all about and why we've spent such an inordinate amount of time talking about it. Uh, <laughs> it'd be, you know, good to... Good to continue the conversation because one of the things that I have really enjoyed um, with this series is the kind of feedback that we've got on some of the episodes and yeah. particularly the, the, you know, the things that we might have missed or not thought of or kind of other people who have different interpretations of particular titles um, and their relationship to the episodes. It's all quite fascinating. And, and sometimes they're things that I think you don't even realise that you've been making a certain assumption in the back of your mind mm. Um because it's not something that you... I mean, we don't. it's not something that we generally, even as fans, chat about, is it? You know, why do you think no. this episode was called this and not that? We kind of just accept, okay, that's the name it's been given. Uh, mm. We don't really look into it. But sometimes I think it can be illuminating to, yeah. uh, you know, have a think about, you know, someone made this decision to slap this name on this particular story. Uh, and what might they have been thinking when they did that? And, wh and what impact does that have on us? watching the story and and you know how we receive it mm. yeah we've got quite a lot of mileage out of it on that in that context more than you might have thought when we first started actually so it's been it's been a really i know i haven't been on every single one of these but i've i think i've done them you know i think something like four out of five of them maybe with you but it's been four out of seven even but it's been um yeah, it's been really good. It's been really good to look at Star Trek through this prism actually because it does illuminate things you wouldn't have thought of um so, but but I th I think we might have to wait a while before. We're, although I was going to say, 
Maybe not. But given the amount, given the amount of Star Trek they're churning out these days, especially once COVID's mm. all done, and they've, you know, we'll be getting, we might be getting up to, I don't know, 30, 40 episodes a year, you know, of Star Trek. So maybe more. Who knows? So it might be before we know it, we'll be back <laughs> for part eight. Could be sooner than we think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, uh, it's a pleasure as always to have you on the show, Tony. And uh, talk to you again next time. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.